you think about the traditional front three, including Firmino, they were close to each other and it just seems systematically right now Liverpool are not clicking. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, it's bang on half past seven. It's Journal with you all the way through until 10 this morning. What's rare is wonderful. We're counting down the days. This is our third last ever show. That is correct. Yeah, that is very true. You feel excited about it? 100% buzzing. Um, just for anybody who's listening to the show this morning, we've, we've arrived wearing the same clothes completely mm. accidentally. It was pointed out to us by Jojo. And was also wearing the same clothes. So... Uh, there was no memo. It's just a kind of random convergence of people. Maybe it's a, a subconscious celebration of the glory of Rangers after their successful arrival to the Champions League group stages last night. First time in a long time, both Celtic and Rangers in the group stages. Mm. What is it? 2007, potentially, since they were both in the group stages together. So, yeah, this is, uh, this is now a Rangers show. I know, I know the Celtic fans don't want Rangers to succeed, but they need them to. Like this is actually good for business. This makes this makes people more interested in both of them collectively. It makes the sponsors more interested. They're going to be able to attract more players because there's more big games. It's not like you know you're just going for just the Champions League anymore. You're going for Champions League and Old Firm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I don't know. The the it seems the two things that happened over the the last fifteen years that maybe the Scottish Premiership had declined a little bit, and the Champions League had also shot forward significantly and those two things happening you kind of thought it, it might be a while before you see these two teams in the group stages together but it's happened this year the league is obviously in a very good place and um, whether Celtic and Rangers fans like it or not it is probably going to be the avenue that most people will end up watching them this season which is through the Champions League as opposed to paying an interest in the week-to-week nature of, of the Scottish Premiership of course the old firm fixtures are an exception to that Um is your plan to go down the Atlantic coast or the Pacific coast? I yeah, I don't really have a plan yet. I, I don't really have a plan. So I guess I would be better off going down the Pacific coast because that way, if I run out of money, at least I'll have seen the better coast. Because you're far away from home and like, yeah. Yeah, that coast kind of interests me a little bit more. I want to do both, obviously. I mean, you're used to the Atlantic. You've seen... You've, Very good point. You've been seeing the Atlantic week in, week out, day in, day out. Yeah. Grinding reality after grinding reality for 28 years now. Yeah. So you might as well go and see something different. Yeah, it's, that's. I hadn't really thought of that. A different ocean. I presume it looks different and feels different and smells different. And uh, i got to go find out if that's the truth. Yeah. And when you're lying there on the beach with like the little uh, umbrellas in your glass, staring at an, an endless vista of sunshine and slowly crisping... Uh, what what about this specifically? Will you miss the most, Owen? <laughs> what about this? Flavor? What, what, oh, that's a it's a it's a good question. I I I don't know. I, I think maybe the fact that uh, you get paid to show up and talk nonsense about sport probably is a is a, like if if I have to go and make money if I like I'm very concerned about like just blowing all my cash very soon and, and this thing I'm not very good at you know uh, budgeting so if I have to go and uh, earn a quick dollar I might have to do something that it doesn't involve you know sitting in a studio and chatting nonsense Washing about dishes, sports a bit it, of cooking. It, all of those things are significantly yeah. more difficult than uh, sitting here and chatting George nonsense. Orwell obviously spent a lot of time down and out in the, the kitchens of Paris and that turned him into the person he was okay nice good for good for George you could learn how to cook a little bit of Mexican yeah, that'd be a good life skill to come back with. It, it, it certainly would. Yeah, I could. Those are definitely options. I'll, I'll add them to the uh, to do list or the possibles 
thank you for your life advice. Uh, well, don't worry. There's no, there's no, there's no life advice coming here. The the um, star are doing this thing at the moment with Carlo Kane and Pat Nolan counting down the fifty most. You th- you think that wasn't the first thing I I, I read this morning? Influential, I mean, influential current figures, right? Is what they is what the the thing yeah. there says. But the back page, which is the genius cell, top fifty influencers in the world of GA. Well, you wouldn't know. These could be the top 50 influencers in GEA where and your you algorithm is where, just wrong. Where do you think you're going to finish? Uh, well, uh, I think that... I mean, hang on. Now, you, you invented power rankings in the context of GEA. If that's not top 10, I don't know. And <laughs> they know they, it looks uh, like it's going to finish around next Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, I think they've timed this, but you're going. Yeah, yeah. I would be surprised if they have Day after day, we're going to have to look at it now. They've done the first 30. The first sorry, They've done down to 30. Now, there's a couple of heavy hitters that I would have had my eye on where I was like, okay, that's the benchmark. If they're not appearing on the list, I also have a chance. However, they've blown two of the heavy hitters early on day one of this list. Uh, one Mr. Buff Egan oh, is on the list. he is. And one Mr. Uh, Desmond Cahill is also on the list. Now, I have neither the Snapchat nor the dancing skills to uh, compete with those two men so I fear that you've got the power rankings the they power don't have rankings. the power rankings yes there's indeed. like a, Buff has his gimmick that's okay you know it's the Sunday game's relatively important in the in this grand scheme of uh, things uh, it's funny it's funny what they what they talk about Buff Egan the much travelled Kerryman and hurling fanatic enjoys huge traction on social media with an excess of 250,000 followers across the various platforms his updates and highlights complete with colourful commentaries from off-Broadway hurling matches in particular bring much-needed exposure to team and players in the game's lower tiers. Egan is also something of a selfie magnet, particularly with his OK hand signal, while his catchphrases like Hail Hail and Deleted are now part of the GAA vernacular. Is it his catchphrase, the Celtic thing, Hail Hail? Or is that, is he, he, well, fair play. If you just take something, you own it, right? Yeah, and I, like, I genuinely wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people came happened upon the phrase Hail Hail through Buff Egan. This, this list is genius. Yeah. This list is absolutely genius. The first thing I read this morning. Buff Egan is number 44. He is ahead of Pat Gilroy at 45. <laughs> <laughs> the man who managed to turn around one of the, the, the biggest behemoths of GA that was flailing along for so long. Yes, yes. Like there's, a, there's a case that he's like Alex Ferguson, that he's at that level of influence, <laughs> you know? Um, and Buff Egan gets ahead of him because of Snapchat. It's like... This list is absolute genius. I haven't seen, I have not seen Pat Gilroy uh, show me highlights from Kilmoyley versus Ballyduff. You haven't. It's true. It's true. Um, Who would be mobbed by more people after an All-Ireland final? Oh, both. By a distance. Oh, it's not not close. Yeah, yeah. Now, the age profile of the people who are interested in talking to him is different from the age profile of the people who... But I think Buff is actually, because of the fact that he's actually been around for so long at this point, as in, in internet terms. Like, first time I heard of Buff, maybe 17, 2017, 2018. Oh, it's even longer, isn't even it? Long, so, like, you're yeah. talking, like, a lot of people are kind of like, uh, they burn brightly for a few months and then their star wanes. Like, you, so what you have now is you have kids who've, like, told their parents and have, like, grown up almost around Buff over the last few years that you actually have all lads going up to Buff asking for photos at this point. So it's not just... It's for the kids. Go on, go yeah. on. Exactly. Um, the other thing, uh, so Connor catches Connor Moore is at, at number um, thirty-seven, just one behind John Horan at thirty-six, and two behind Des Cal. Um, but he's ahead of Frank Murphy, and he's ahead of Kevin McStay, and Colin O'Rourke, and he's ahead of Jack O'Connor. I mean, can't really argue with that. Like, how many Monday Night Football uh, appearances or you know, uh, kind of, uh, and it keeps tributes. going. They did it again. They've yeah. done. They've done. So they did it. 
like in passing, but then they did another sketch. Yeah, they've like they've done it twice. Mm. That's mad. Yeah, it's that is uh, massive, and also Formula One stuff too. But this is this is just exclusively the world of GAA. So, what does Jack O'Connor need to do to get some respect around here? He's number thirty-eight in this list. He needs to write another book. Three separate times. What or does he need to do? Maybe instead of um, instead of a book, a Keys to the Kingdom vlog. Maybe next summer. Where where are you going to be on? Give me a prediction. What's the spread here? Uh, I'm not going to appear in that list, but if it was a good proper list, where should I appear? King, uh, King of the Kerry Mafia, inventor of the GAA power rankings. I it would be top. I'd be in number two. Number one would be Michael Cusack, and I'd be number two. Michael Cusack, you know his his brand has faded somewhat. Ah, there's a there's a stand in his honour. Well, that's what I was going to say. People know more from the stand than anything else that he's done. Yeah, the stand. There's a like a, I'm sure a few uh, tributes to him in pubs around the country. Don't think I'll be able to knock Cusack off his perch, but you never know. Strange things happen. There you go. It's uh, 7.38 this morning. If you want to get in touch with us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. 87 is the WhatsApp number. You can also uh, get us um, on the YouTube channel. And uh, uh, here's what's coming up between now. <laughs> you can get us on the YouTube. Yeah, you can get us on the YouTube. Where, the YouTube do you think you're going to appear on this list? Oh, I don't. No, no. No, sure. Why would I? The man who, I don't know... That was sorry. That was not an invite for you to um, list my great GA achievements. <laughs> Just still thinking here. You can do the coming up there. I'll have something at the end. <laughs> okay, great. Here's coming up. Matt Williams is going to talk to us rugby at ten past eight. Uh, Codeline are going to talk to us at eight thirty this morning. We virtual insanity at eight forty. You had to be there. Is Carl Denny who has been to some amazing things at eight fifty. Graham Hunter is going to join us at ten past nine. We'll talk Casemiro. We'll talk about potentially Alexander Isak becoming the record signing at Newcastle and the difference that that's going to make. And then. Um, two thirds of the hurting pod were reunited last night on off the ball on news talk, and that's James Gale at half nine. I have it. You have influenced the foremost GEA podcast in the country. Some of your opinions, I believe, have oh. been aired oh, on the football is, uh, yeah, pod. You, this you week. bring this up. Go on. You tell you tell everybody the story of the uh, the rape and plunder and pillage. The the uh, Elgin marbles just sitting there, just sitting there in a WhatsApp group, ripped off. And smeared all over the football pod by Tommy Rooney. You tell everybody about you had a take his his him stealing my ideas. Yeah, it wasn't even a good take. It was just a funny, it's like a random. No, I'm going to try this. You, you try out some material mm-hmm. in a WhatsApp group, and Tommy goes yoink, and then doesn't even credit you. I don't think he even replied to your message in the WhatsApp group about that. About thing. the theft. About the th- no, sorry, at the initial oh, thing. So that. he just saw it and he was like lodging that in here, and then he uh, used it with with James and Paddy. What, what was the take again? Well, it was just interesting to me in the All-Ireland semi-final and the All-Ireland final that David Clifford's oh, yeah. first tackle of the game is clothesline. Like, absolute, yeah. the worst tackle. The type of tackle that you would do if you were an outlad, like, who'd been drinking for 10, 15 years and got called up for the junior C team mm. and some young fella runs past you in the first three minutes and you're like, I'm just going to lay down a bit of a marker here because I don't want him running up and down the pitch the whole time. I'm going to be stood there with the, like, the belly hanging out over the shorts. That's what, It looked like one of those tackles. And David Clifford is clearly the best athlete in the top five athletes in the country so if he wanted to tackle you properly he probably could so I was like why are you doing that what's the story with that and then listening to um, Paddy Talley well it, it was it, it was actually it was Paddy Talley but it was even before that it was um, James O'Donoghue talking about the tackling stats and the forwards are all like you're all measured on how many times are you tackled in the first half and collectively everybody needs to defend and I was like I wonder does he get booked on purpose just so it's like you can't do any more tackling now you, you're not allowed to do any more tackling and he's like oh what a, well that's a tragedy I don't have to follow my man back I'm just going to stand here and kick some points and um, 
My work here is done. Ten points, one yellow card, everybody's happy, and he's like, you know, it's a good strategy. Playing chess. Yeah, exactly. And on the football pod this week, again, I must Tommy's like, do you think do you think there's a possibility he gets booked early so he doesn't have to go back and tackle? I'm like, it wasn't even delivered properly. Disgrace. No build up. That is it's just spat out. Oh. That surely warrants Tom Rooney's dead to me. Inclusion on the list. GA influencer Jerry Gilroy. Well, uh, no one knows about it. We have we, we keep that to ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that, that's kind of the sad thing, you know, that we don't have a platform to be able to tell anybody. I about know we've been deplatformed. That's yeah. what's happened here. It's shocking, shocking. Um, you are going to be deplatformed apart from your socials. You better like you, you need to build those up in the next three days while you have access to our platform. Yeah, follow me at uh, there's my name on screen. Just at that, just no space between the first name and the surname. And everything, on everything. Platforms. I think I've got. I, I don't think there are too many own chains on. Uh, on things, there is like a, a chef called Owen Sheehan who I often get tagged for. He is also ginger. I've, I often wake up at after a nap at like half five, and it's like, oh my god, I'm supposed to be cooking on the five o'clock show on uh, Virgin Media right now. Oh right, yeah. he's, he's he's like mildly famous too. He, he's far more famous than me. Yeah, I don't think and so. And he can cook. Uh, he could he could probably make it through the kitchen. In, cook, in a, not that I've ever you know not that we've ever been invited, but you keep telling us. Yeah. 7.43 This week American football is coming to Dublin as the Aer Lingus College Football Classic will see the Northwestern Wildcats Wildcats even play the Nebraska Cornhuskers in the Aviva this Saturday at half past five it's all in partnership with Visit Dublin to celebrate we have a pair of tickets to the big game to give away each day this week as well as entry to our grand prize draw the grand prize includes two nights accommodation in the Dean Hotel this weekend breakfast at the hotel lunch at Charlotte Key Restaurant post-game dinner at Sophie's Rooftop Restaurant and a Guinness Storehouse tour for the following day. So it's an incredible weekend with some top-quality college football action thrown in as well. All you need to do is tell us who this mystery voice is reacting to the news that Owen is leaving the show. Shocking. I am. I am disgusted with it. To enter, just tweet us at OffTheBall on Twitter or at OffTheBallAM uh, with your answer along with the hashtag OTBAM and you will be in with an opportunity to win. Who this? Shocking. I am. I am disgusted with it. All right. Uh, OTBM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today. I think we have another video. Do we? Do we have another video? Woke up this morning with this kind of feeling of unease in my in my tummy. Like the, something was out of kilter in the world. And there it was. Message from Colin informing me that Owen Sheehan was leaving off the wall. What the absolute hell. Owen, it's been a pleasure to be interviewed by you. Being... Uh, listening to you um, on Off The Wall so listen the very very best of luck with everything it's been a pleasure uh, listening to you blue t-shirt blue t-shirt thank you Gordon Darcy like, that's very nice there you go um, lovely um, I was going to say that's probably an Irish sea breeze isn't it I presume that's like her clothes that was nice anyway yeah looked, looked idyllic almost want to stay do like, you? What, like, what would convince you now to like? What 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 level of anxiety would you have to reach to go? Oh no! What have I done? I think I think anxiety's already reached uh, fever pitch at this point. So if I can power through this, then we're all good. Okay. Yeah. All right. We've one more. Why we do one more? We do one more. Yeah, we will do one more now. Owen, have a ball in South America. You definitely aren't a lion or two. And if South America should throw up any surprises, I'd highly recommend calling on those now famous Kilkenny Camogie Street Smarts to get you out of any bother. <laughs> Thank you very much, Sarah Dunman. There you go. Um, yeah, there was, um, was I invited to play full forward for a Camogie team on Twitter, I think she said, before I go last week. So um, I don't think I'm going to get time to... To take that off for all these, all these life opportunities that are coming your way that now it's like as I said there's the scene in is it Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer where they attend their own funeral 
that's that's that we're just spreading out your funeral over the course of the whole week. Yeah, you're loving it. I know. I can tell. No, it's been it's been absolutely fantastic to be able to see what it would be like if you died. Uh, we should talk about um, how we're all now Brighton fans and we're now all MK Dons fans, or at least we should be, because the greening of Brighton continues apace, particularly in the Carabao Cup. Now, you know, they're playing really well in the Premier League and um, they have a very progressive, intelligent coach and a brilliant recruiting system. And it looks like they're young players, particularly uh, the best young attacking players they have are Irish Evan Ferguson scored for the first time for the senior team last night mm. in the 94th minute I was like oh did he did he, did he, start, he started the game played the whole game scored into the third and a 3-0 win and um, it's generally pretty impressive yeah like this is I sometimes forget that Evan Ferguson is 17 years of age um, like because I guess we're, he was unbelievably young when he kind of first uh, kind of came to our attention obviously in that uh, pre-season friendly against Chelsea so a goal and an assist last night for Brighton and Hove Albion and uh, it's his first senior goal for a club uh, Kenny's kids have posted a video of it and it looks like a, a back heel at the f- near post as the, the ball comes across the, the six yard box and uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant finish and probably the first of, of many many goals there but also you've got Andy Moran in the, the build up not that Andy Moran I was going to uh, say step aside Leitrim yeah uh, Slash mail, yeah. Andy Moran. A pretty inflicted. The time is over. Well. There's a new Andy Moran in town. Yeah, <laughs> there is, and like it's it's not so much now that like we're getting excited by a generation of Irish footballer who are also under twenty ones. It's the ones that are under 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 twenty one. Like it's the the teenagers of Ireland that are also playing really well and starting to break through at senior level. It feels even earlier than the sort of parrot either generation. I know it's not, but it, it kind of feels a little bit younger even. Like the case with Evan Ferguson is, is a little bit bonkers. Actually, he is only 17 still. Like He was he was 14 in that uh, friendly against Chelsea. Um, when like the, There were the photos of him and his family at, um, at Daily Mount that night basically went viral uh, in, around these parts anyway. So uh, being familiar with somebody so young, it, it's always going to be, there's always going to be a level of pressure on him. But I presume getting out of Ireland and, and going across has probably changed that pressure a little bit and it's very sort of um, insular in terms of like trying to progress through the, the Brighton ranks but it's been a club that obviously we've kind of placed a, a bit of hope on when it comes to Irish talent over the last few years Yeah and the quality of football that they're playing you know the the, the buzz around Ferguson is very intense and he's been mm. in the senior squad for ages now so like they're they're definitely acclimatising him to it I, I yeah. don't know what the right thing to do for a striker that age is it to keep playing as few minutes as he's playing at the moment but to learn about the rigours of what it's like to be in the first team and then go on loan as a 19, 20 year old or does he need to play first team football and does that massively like is getting kicked every week an education that will stand to him forever or is it the type of thing that slows your progress down because you pick up niggly injuries and you never quite I don't know what the it's it's very hard to know what to do isn't it? It, it is and you would have thought that maybe at his age there's still a hell of a lot that you can learn from just being around a Premier League team especially if you're going to get significant enough minutes in the EFL Cup but you would have thought with a squad like Brighton that playing and scoring and assisting in, in the Carabao Cup will lead to some Premier League minutes over the course of the season and I think at the age of 17 that would be a brilliant outcome like you mentioned the MK Dons contingent there as well uh, you had uh, Dara Burns and uh, Dawson Devoy playing for them last night they beat Watford 2-0 and Dara Burns actually scored a second of those two goals uh, at Vicarage Road uh, and then so they're both 20 years of age and then they've got an old fella 23 year old Warren O'Hora at the back the Dubliner who uh, would have played for Bowes as well beforehand so 
MK Dons well he actually came via Brighton as well after leaving Bohemian so MK Dons Brighton and Hove Albion take your pick as to which Irish bandwagon you want to get on yeah now MK Dons not doing great at the moment in, in League 1 they're kind of um, in the relegation zone but like you know two two wins would put you in the uh, playoffs so we're obviously very early on in the season and I don't know how strong a team that is for MK Dons if they're um, playing a strong team in the EFL Cup or if that's not but um, like there's just that generation of players who are making it at that level and getting game time and being influential that makes you feel quite positive about the Ireland setup. <coughs> are, we, are we? Is it? You know, because we, we were talking about this in the context of Adam Eady yesterday. It's like it's good to get excited about this now, right? Yeah, like it, it is hard to know. Is it, is it recency bias or is it? Is there actually like a, a greater volume of players coming through at these clubs or? potentially players who have gone over to England maybe with a better footing from their education in Ireland and, and as a result are, are making it a little bit quicker. It, it feels it is like the latter. It doesn't feel, it's, it obviously is a little bit of recency bias, but it doesn't feel it's, it's all that. It does feel that things are, f- are far more ripe now than they were five years ago and that there is definitely a lot more hope. And it, it's just the fact that all of these, like these clubs aren't, of course, they're going to invest in the future with, with a player who's 20 years of age or in Ferguson's case, a fellow who's 17 years of age. Of course they will. But it does feel that this generation is just better than the one of five, ten years ago where these players are getting opportunities younger and younger and these clubs are trusting them to throw them into to big situations, especially when you look at a club like Brighton. The other thing about Evan Ferguson is that we don't really need to rush him into the senior setup at the moment because we actually have, for the first time in a long time, some depth in that area. Whereas, like, if you know, if this had been three or four years ago, we would have been saying at seventeen, I don't really care that it's seventeen. You need to put him in the team because we need to see what he can do at senior level. But that's not the case at the moment, so there's no pressure to rush him through. No, they're definitely not, and that like is on an on an Ireland level as well as on a Brighton level, obviously as well, because you look at some of the the depth that maybe Ireland have in midfield now as well. Like the thing is, there'd probably be a few Ireland midfielders maybe who are kind of looking over their shoulder, even as not not necessarily Ferguson himself, but just kind of that swathe of players who are coming through from the Ireland under twenty ones. Like you're, you're, like just a player for whatever reason just comes to mind right now is like someone like Jason Malumbi, who's twenty three years old right now. He, he's kind of of that age where it's like he was part of an exciting generation but it just kind of feels like the next the, the younger generation than him again uh, there's almost like they're, they're even more stacked at this point um, obviously he's gone to, to, to West Brom at the moment and uh, he's obviously had his time at, at Brighton and obviously because of injury things didn't go amazingly well for him and a couple of those loan spells maybe he didn't uh, prove himself at Brighton so there's an obvious comparison there between himself and, and Ferguson to see who will actually come out of, of Brighton and that system in a better place Yeah and, and you're talking about those players at that level we've Gavin Kilkenny on the show um, it's going to be very interesting to see how much football he plays this year if, if he can play a full season does he catapult himself into contention at that stage Will Smallbone obviously doing really well with the uh, underage international side and again has had uh, the opportunity that he's going to play a bit of football so all of a sudden it's not like we have three players who will play for us whether or not they're fit whether or not they're actually playing mm-hmm. in midfield there are some options at least which is what. Like that's all you need as, a, as an international manager and then it's up to you to turn them into something I, I wonder as well is there like a case here that we were telling ourselves for so long that championship and league one is the new reality for Irish players and we actually just didn't believe it we, like, we, 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 we've still been attached to the idea that the only way you're going to be good enough to play for Ireland and bring Ireland back to past glories is if you play in the Premier League and it was just kind of like a bit of a platitude until Chidozi Benny comes along and is like what this guy is doing he's almost like matching his League One stats on the international stage against what would seem like better opposition and I think maybe we've 
just needed a few years to realise how strong the pyramid is in English football right now. And to be honest, maybe how unfair it sometimes is where it's a little bit of a meritocracy it usually is but it's not fully a meritocracy like you do have players playing in League 1 who could possibly make it at the top of the championship if not even a little bit higher Um, two things one is the uh, anytime you talk to the international um, press or fans when their team comes over they're always complaining about the quality of the management they're always saying our manager is, is absolutely rubbish and if you look at the quality of the footballer that Portugal had versus the quality of footballer that we had they should have hammered us right on, yeah. on paper if Pep Guardiola had that team week in week out they would have beaten us 5-6-0 but ultimately international football is a bit of a crapshoot because the players come in they're like not very accustomed to playing with each other and unless it's a really a tournament time where they become accustomed to it and they're fully tuned in then you have an opportunity if there's like enough organisation and desire and then the other thing is there's a brilliant piece by Dave Hannigan today about the movie Bull Durham I don't know if you had a chance to read this but he was saying the difference between good and great is fairly minimal like um, there's a, I, I haven't seen the movie or at least I haven't seen the movie in a long time well enough to remember it but there's a great speech that Kevin Costner gives you know what the difference between hitting 250 and 300 is it's 25 hits 25 hits and 500 at-bats is 50 points that's 6 months in a season that's about 25 weeks that means if you get one extra flare a week just one a gork a ground ball a ground ball with eyes you get a dying quail just one more dying quail a week and you're in Yankee Stadium like the difference between League One and uh, Premier League is like your XG is point zero two better mm-hmm. and they're like ah, oh, Premier League striker Championship striker away you go and um, we've got a lot of the just one more dying quail yeah like and I wonder as, as part of that you know like it, it, it does feel sometimes a little bit conspiratorial when people are talking about you know the, the, the nationality of players and, and where they transfer to and from especially in a Premier League level and the sort of English footballer tax that exists like if uh, a football club is looking at uh, a set of statistics in relation to, to a centre back or whatever like I mean, does that kind of like conspiracy around Harry Maguire actually get furthered a little bit? I don't. I, I hate to like just bring him up immediately, but it's just like a, a good example of somebody maybe whose England career has propelled him to uh, getting attached to a massive transfer fee. Can I do just uh, to the reverse of that? Right, say Declan Rice is stuck with Ireland. Yeah, would he be at a much bigger club now? Because the fee would have been less. Because you wouldn't have to pay the English tax. Well, yeah, there, there you go. So, you know, you got him for fifty million instead of a hundred million, but he's still the same player. Or is, is Declan Rice? Yeah, no, he if you, he is he is objectively excellent. There's no getting away from that fact. So that probably he is probably one of those players that where the cream would rise. But at the same time, I'm not sure with the hype around Declan Rice have been the same from so young. Were he not an England no, player? No, there's not a chance. And there's no way that people would have been saying, "Oh, sign him now. He's your midfielder for the next ten years. Make him the captain." But they would have been like, "This guy's pretty good. Can he cut it? Can Declan Rice cut it?" You know, he, he, he's got a character flaw. He rejected the pressure of being an England sorry, an England player. That's what would have, the narrative like, would have been. It's, and they would have talked the price down. And Man United or Liverpool probably would have signed him. And he'd be at Liverpool now for 35 million three seasons ago. And they'd be like, wow, that looks a bit like a bargain now. Yeah, or because he was a Republic of Ireland player, he never would have even been in that conversation. Like, I would like to think that a club like Liverpool probably wouldn't be swayed by that. A club like Manchester United. What I mean could. is, the price would have been less. Yeah, no, I, I get your point, hundred percent. But I'm, 
I'm not even sure if the, the star would have been as appreciated enough to, to sign for a top four club, a top six club, had he been an Irish player. I, now that I said it out loud, it does feel very sort of... Uh, I think their recruitment is, is cleverer than that, right? And he is he is bloody good, to say the least. There's probably some clubs who would be less interested in signing him because they don't get the, they don't get what they see as the benefit of having future England captain on their team. But uh, that's, I guess, neither here nor there. OTAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Champions Rob Kearney, Johnny Marta and Ger Lyons join off the ball for our Longines Irish Champions weekend special. It's in the Davenport Hotel. It's this Friday at 7 o'clock. It's going to be... An incredible weekend of racing at Leopardstown and the Curra. That's on September 10th and 11th. So we're getting our preview in early. It's an exclusive off-air event. The only way to enjoy it is to be there on the night. Tickets to attend the show are free. But please register at otbsports.com forward slash events for tickets. We want to talk about golf. We were talking about this um, off-air and you were making the point that this is the first step for Rory McIlroy to become a billionaire if it works. Yeah, so this was uh, announced yesterday. What we have is uh, tomorrow Golf League. So tomorrow TMRW. So the initials of that is Tiger McElroy Rory Woods. That's the uh, organization wow. name. So uh, catchy. So uh, the, then you've got the TGL, which is... Somebody gets paid a lot of money to come up with this shit. Like a lot of money. So TGL is tomorrow Golf League. So uh, that's... Tiger McElroy Rory Woods Golf League. Uh, I, I hope there's somebody who like gives the, the full name. So that, it's going to kick off in January 2024. Wow! So uh, get nerds, get to work, make this thing seem good. I presume is why they've been uh, pushing this back a little bit. So this is uh, Dylan Dieter of Golf.com, I think, who uh, published those photographs yesterday, which is uh, a little bit of a mock-up of how the studio is going to look. Talk us through this, Eric. So just leave those pictures up for a minute. We can we can linger on this. We can luxuriate in um, this. Um 1990s Japanese game show that they have in front of us. <laughs> so this is uh, a stadium-style golf event. So there's going to be 18 players in the league split into six teams and they'll go head-to-head over the course of 15 Monday nights throughout the season. Like, you would have thought that Monday night golf is pretty ripe for the picking when it comes to television figures, assuming it's not going to go up against the NFL season. And it's going to supplement the PGA Tour uh, just basically going to try and bolster the profiles of a lot of the players and give them more money at is, the end of the day. What is it, Owen? What is it? It's, uh, I guess, Top Golf, uh, except it looks like you're going to be playing on a real green. So, What's Top Golf? Uh, it's that thing in the States where it's like driving ranges right. and like a virtual simulating golf related activities uh, I don't know is the short answer to your question but what I could say is that this is like a virtual simulator for like your long game and off the tee and it looks like there's going to be a, a real short game element to it it'll stop Tiger Woods having to walk 18 that helps your, your best star can play uh, top golf slash uh, TGL uh, pretty easily you would have thought he gets uh, a lift for, so they're, uh, in my head they're in a corporate box in a stadium Yeah, they tee off in the corporate box and then they get the lift down and they go and they pitch onto a, a fake green. Maybe it will be real green. Yeah. Maybe they'll be able to like build greens and move them and transport them in trucks and stuff. Yeah, like that. That could uh, that could definitely be a good way of doing it. Apparently, there was there is, actually is a, a TV show on, on US television called Holy Moly, which I was just watching a little bit of earlier on. <laughs> it's uh, like total wipeout meets mini golf. So like you kind of like play your shot, and then you got to like run across like inflatable balloons and hope that the windmill doesn't knock you clean out into a river. Okay, okay. I don't think they'll have that in this. But like I was watching an episode earlier on where they put Steph Curry up against a robot. Right, did the robot win? Um, I'm not actually sure. Steph Curry's pretty good at golf. He is pretty good at golf, and he was kind of like a professional. Because, like, um, it's kind of like when um, 
Oh my god, uh, Gary Kasparov uh, went up against the computer in, in chess all those years ago. Like that, that that was what Steph Curry against the, the robot was. So that's maybe where this this golf thing could go on a on a Monday night. It is interesting though that like they are basically saying we are doing this because we realise that there is a massive uh, swathe of people out there who don't like the television product that is golf. At the same time, those people involved in the PGA Tour would have been highly critical of Live Golf and then playing 54 holes and then using shotgun starts, even though I think we all kind of realise that maybe a shotgun start could actually make for a better television or yeah. allows yeah, for a better yeah. product. Yeah. Because it's Live Golf, we're not allowed to say that those things are good. Yeah, yeah, okay. So it seems like the PGA Tour have kind it of... It seems fair that everybody's out in the course at the same time, right? Yeah. and Well, it, elongate the length of the round because... And, put, and it like just, just shortens the length of the, the television broadcast at the end of the day. So um, like I, I think that this is probably a, a quick realisation that they need to do something. But also what's really interesting, and it's um, Dylan Dieter as well, who tweeted a screenshot yesterday of a conversation he had with Martin Trainer? He's number 138 in the FedEx Cup. And Martin Trainer said to him, it sounds like the rich are getting richer and the little folk getting some perks as well. And then he also said, perversely, Phil's dubious proclamation that he wants to use the Live Tour to change the PGA Tour for the better is coming true. And that's something that immediately struck me as well when I saw this. It was like, these golfers are going to do quite well out of this because they announced a whole host of other Perks to be a PGA Tour golfer yesterday as well, uh, where like they're going to expand the PIP. Sorry, separate to the Mickey Mouse tournament. Separate to the Mickey Mouse tournament. This is this is one of a number of different initiatives announced by the PGA Tour yesterday. They're going to elevate the the PIP um, program to include. Expl- explain in case anybody wasn't paying attention. What does PIP even stand for again? I can ah. only remember, but it's like the exposure rankings. Uh, uh, and like, uh, did, who won it last year? Did Phil win it last year? Are you good on social? Are you good on social? The, uh, how how exposed are you? <laughs> how well have you exposed yourself hey. to, to the world? Careful. Is, this, uh, is, uh, this is golfers who like to, you know, sometimes they, they take those sleeping tablets yeah. or whatever it is that the <laughs> excuse du jour is. Uh, so there's, um, they're going to like uh, expand that a little bit, and there's going to be more money. I think it's going to be, uh, I know it's going to be 100 million per year for the top 20. So spread out amongst the top 20, there'll be 100 million on offer. I think it was 50 million, uh, and it was only the top 10 golfers uh, who were included in that program before. So they basically doubled their money on that. Then they're also going to essentially elevate 12 of the top PGA Tour events to, to being more important, essentially. And there's just going to be bigger financial incentives uh, available. And what the outcome of that will be is that there's going to be... So you're going to have your 12 elevated events um, plus uh, your your majors and presumably the Players' Championship. So you're going to have something like 17 events every year where the top professionals are going to tee it up against one another. So they had a players' meeting a few days ago and apparently one of the big outcomes from that was that they admitted that they don't have enough regularity with regards to the field. So you could turn on your TV some Thursday afternoon and it's like, oh, um, Roy McIlroy is not playing this week for such and such a reason. They want to make that more uniform. Again, trying to stoke up maybe rivalries and, uh, and sort of some sort of regularity with regards to the television audience. Things that Live Golf have sort of uh, uh, tapped into a little bit over the, the last few months. Yeah, if you sign up for Live, you've got to show up for all the tournaments and you can't yeah. play in any other tournament that week. Uh, if you're not playing in the live tournament for whatever reason you're not allowed to play so like GMAC wasn't allowed to play in the Irish Open even though he'd signed up for it and yeah. was supposed to be involved because there was a live tournament on that week they're like ah, 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 that's not going to happen yeah exactly so um, there's just like the, the golfers on the PGA Tour are going to get paid better even even those at the bottom of the pile there'll be better incentives for them like there will be expenses paid for uh, there'll be like a, a stipend offered by the PGA Tour for some of the, the, the lower level uh, golfers as well and um, I think that'll probably prop them up a little bit so that'll kind of 
to stop the the cherry picking of some of the smaller names, I guess. From the it's funny, of. like tennis is ripe for this stuff too, right? Mm. Where you, you know, you, anytime we speak to any of the Irish people who um, tried to make it or are, are trying to make it, like the cost of being on tour is absolutely massive versus the almost zero that you're earning. And uh, actually, if they just made it easier, you might have more of those players who could um, benefit from strength and conditioning and uh, psychology and good quality coaching that would level the field out. It's, it's, tennis is one of those sports is the further you get on and the bigger your entourage gets and the more you're able to invest in, in your body, the better you are and the more secure you become in your place. Um, so, you know, if you're if you're Saudi Arabia and you're looking to do a bit more sports washing, the selfishness of the tennis players, like, yeah, stick them in a dome in Saudi Arabia. Nobody knows where they're playing. It absolutely, like, it's absolutely right for picking here as well. So um, this is kind of like obviously it's just the PGA Tour finally getting their act together with regards to how they're going to tackle live golf. What you've got. Uh, next weekend, isn't it? Yeah, next week, not this weekend. Next weekend, you've got Live Golf in Boston, and uh, the big news yesterday was that they've announced Diplo to play one of the days in Boston. But I, I went in and I was looking through, uh, you know, kind of like how you get into a Live event. We obviously know the kids go free. That's something that's been publicised quite a lot. But what I find interesting is that you know the uh, backlash towards Live has kind of moved towards the nine eleven angle. But on Live Golf, uh, it's not just kids who go free. There's complimentary military and veteran tickets. And then there's 25% off for first responders as well. So there's like this great irony at the, the heart of, of Live Golf as well. Uh, who's Diplo? Uh, Diplo is uh, like an American musician who is a part of Major Laser. He's uh, a producer, a rapper. He has okay. all those, those okay. things. He's, um, he sold his soul. Right. OTBA and brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. It's seven minutes past eight. Um, we're going to talk to Matt Williams in just a moment. We have one more to bring in this morning. Yeah, let's go. Owen, how's it going? Uh, Kieran Donaghy here. Just a quick message to say, firstly, from my point of view, thanks very much for everything you did for me uh, during our time together and off the ball. As a fellow Kerry man, you looked after me, showed me the ropes, and uh, we great crack doing the shows in the morning with Char. Secondly, um, I heard it on Sky Sports News last Wednesday night that you were leaving, so um, it was a big breaking story. So uh, I want you to enjoy your time away. Um, I know you have to go and attend a few big parties they're having in Mayo that you're leaving off the ball so uh, behave yourself up there at them and behave yourself uh, on your travels none of the Nashville stuff please you know carry yourself in the right <laughs> manner uh, talk to you soon see you when you're back uh, have a great time and be safe there you go that's nice GA influencers were all in blue this morning 8 minutes past 8 we're going to take a quick break we're back talking rugby with Matt Williams OTB now, this week, American football comes to Dublin as the Erlingus College Football Classic sees the Northwestern Wildcats play the Nebraska Cornhuskers at the Aviva on Saturday at half past five. It's all in partnership with Visit Dublin to celebrate. We have a pair of tickets to the big game to give away each day this week, as well as entry to our grand prize draw. And the grand prize is sensational. Two nights accommodation in the Dean Hotel this weekend. Breakfast at the hotel, lunch at Charlotte Key Restaurant, post-game dinner at Sophie's Rooftop Restaurant, and a Guinness Storehouse tour for the following day. All you need to do is tell us who this mystery voice is, reacting to the news that Owen is leaving. Shocking. I am. I am disgusted with it. To enter, tweet at Off the Ball or at Off the Ball AM on Twitter with your answer along with the hashtag OTBAM. Now, ten minutes past eight, we're turning our attention to rugby. I'm delighted to say Matt Williams is with us. Matt, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Arn. Really good, mate, as always. Um, Joe Schmidt picked a nice first game to be fully officially involved in. It's Argentina at home. I'm not saying it's a gimme. I'm not saying it's a gimme, but it's certainly, from a, a New Zealand perspective, it's one they will expect to win at least, right? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, the, 
the championship last year was a wonderful championship uh, in that uh, because Australia and Argentina stood up and performed. And of course, the the Argentinians famously got their first win against New Zealand. Now, all that whole tournament was held in Australia because of COVID, um, which was very, very difficult on on the South Africans, the New Zealanders and and the Argentinians. But uh, seeing this is in Christchurch, uh, which is really a fortress for New Zealand, it's if Argentina were to win this, and I don't think they will, but if they were, it would be certainly not just a, a turn-up. It would be one of the most extraordinary uh, outcomes in, in recent years. But I, I don't think that's going to happen. How long does it take for Schmidt's influence to become evident to us? And I guess it's kind of an unusual situation because he's, he's officially in the tracksuit and we saw the pictures of him uh, flashing around the world yesterday in his all-blacks gear. But he has definitely had some involvement up to this point. So it's not like it's um, it's not like he's just come off the street and is, is trying to inculcate new ways. There's been an influence there and it's hard for us to gauge exactly what that is. But how long do you think it's going to be before we can go, that's the blueprint that are there the fingerprints of Schmidt on that game plan? Well, it's an interesting one, Joe. Look, Joe's been, I know this for a fact, um, Joe's been involved with the planning of the national team all season, so right back to January. Um, because he, of his deep respect for Ireland, he asked not to be involved in the Irish series. He didn't want to oppose Ireland. Now, you know, he could have very well done that like Michael Cech has done uh, for, for Argentina against the Wallabies, and no one would have thought any difference. It just tells you so much about the man that he didn't want to do that. Um, but because of COVID and a few things, he came in. Look, I think Joe was always going to be involved somewhere in the in the process, and I thought he'd come back to the field at some stage. Um, it's interesting that I'm not so certain we'll see a radical change in how the team play. What I think we'll see is some more precision and strangely that's a word we do associate with New Zealand rugby they, they are incredibly precise their skills are absolutely spot on and that seems to have or, or up until their game in um, uh, the first test at Eden Park obviously they were, they were pretty good against Ireland but at altitude at uh, Ellis Park they were simply magnificent but in those games, besides those two games, they've been very imprecise. They've dropped ball, they've missed tackled, things that we just don't associate with the national team of New Zealand. And I think that's where we'll see Joe start putting his uh, his mark on the team. I don't think we'll see a radical change in the structures. That's not what's going to happen. Um, but what we're going to see is, is a refinement of that. And I, I also think, I think it's a bit like when Paulie came into the national side in Ireland, I was saying to everyone, look, just 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 back off, just let the guy get, get let him get settled in. Like if Joe came in this week and changed twenty things, they might lose. That is the worst thing you can do when you come in mid mid uh, season or or midway through a series. You can't change a lot of things because the players can't adapt that quickly, especially the week of a test match. So we, we won't see a radical change, but we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll see is Joe's insistence on detail, his um, his demands for excellent execution and, and his precision. And I think that's... Uh, if we see a more precise uh, New Zealand side, that's, that's a worry for us all. The Springboks like to 
pull out the video from the RTE analysis of the November International where Ireland absolutely annihilated them and uh, it's like oh this is the worst Springbok team of all time and immediately after that uh, Razzie gets tempted home and we know what happens that ends up with a World Cup win and so changing or getting a, a, a different World Cup uh, getting a different coach pretty close to the World Cup turns out can be a blueprint for success um, is there is there a concern in the rest of the world that adding Joe Schmidt's game smarts intelligence analysis discipline into a fairly talented pool of players um, suddenly catapults them back to being favourites for the World Cup again is, is that what we're talking about here no I'm not I'm not saying look New Zealand are never far from it mate you know like anyone who says uh, since since uh, after 2007 when they lost in the quarter final and they radically changed the way they they treat their coaches which is what we're seeing now that they kept uh, Graham Henry and Steve Hansen and Richie McCaw uh, in when everyone was calling for them to be kicked out after they lost in that quarter final to France in 2007 New Zealand have won two and, and made the semis of, of the third one. So New Zealand are not going to be too far away. And this is, you know, they've got a lot of talent. They've just had a bad run. And th- there's two sides to this, Joe. Everyone is over-exaggerating the problems in New Zealand rugby, especially the New Zealand media. They have been, I think, quite out of hand uh, in what they've been saying. And, look, New Zealand proved that last last game. Less before Joe Schmidt was there. That, that win at Ellis Park was one of the great performances of the last four or five years. They were simply magnificent at altitude. And again, I've said it on your show so many times, to win at altitude is such a hard uh, mission for teams that come from uh, sea level. It, it is just so difficult. Literally, there is less oxygen in the air. And when New Zealand went behind at, I think it was about the 60-minute mark, it might have been a little bit later, it might have been the 65th minute, I'm thinking, wow, at altitude, you've got no oxygen. You've already played your guts out. You're under pressure. I think the Springboks are going to win. And they found a way to come back and play magnificent rugby and win and win well and to win the trophy against New Zealanders between the two countries. So New Zealand are not far away from it. Will Joe Smith would be a an asset for any organisation. There is absolutely no two ways about that. And New Zealand have come out and said, finally showed some kahunas and come out and say, we're backing our coach. They left Ian Foster swinging outrageously for so long and appallingly and an appalling lack of leadership from the New Zealand Rugby Union. Now they've said, oh, no, we're backing him. I think Foster will be there to the the World Cup. What happens beyond that, I'm not so sure. Scotty Robinson, you know, everyone is hailing keeping Ian Foster there as a, a win for Australian rugby because I can tell you, uh, Scotty Robinson will be number one on Australian rugby's shopping list to, to take over from the Wallabies after the next World Cup, leading in to a World Cup in Australia. So there's a lot of machinations and, and processes to happen after 2023 in France. But let's stick with what's beforehand. New Zealand are not going to be easy, and Ireland have got them somewhere at the quarterfinal, I would suspect, or them or France, which is very tough, and they are not going to be the same side that they hit um, on the tour. They're going to be a very, very hard nut to crack. Is the expectation within Australia that there will be a different head coach so at the the end of 2023? Uh, Sorry, for for the Wallabies? Yeah. Uh, Interesting one. I think Dave Rennie's done a phenomenal job. I'm a a big fan. Um, I I know very, very well two of his 
uh, assistant coaches. Scotty <clears throat> Wisemental, his attack coach, is um, a great old mate of mine. I coached Scotty at club level 100 years ago when we were both just starting out. Um, that was my first gig when I finished retired. When I retired, Scotty's a fantastic coach, been assistant coach of uh, attack coach of England, and they've just brought Laurie Fisher in. as a great old mate of mine as well, obviously former Munster coach. Laurie's been brought in. Matt Taylor uh, resigned after the Argentinian uh, test. I, I don't believe that was the reason. He wasn't sacked. I think he was just incredibly mentally fatigued after ten years at international level, and he just sort of had to get away for a while. And Laurie Fisher's come in. Laurie is an absolutely exceptional defence coach, exceptional coach of the breakdown. Players love him. He's, a, he's an older guy, and he just brings this extra dimension. So he's going to have a great staff there. Let's let's be really honest. Australian rugby, New Zealand rugby, the problems are totally different. Australian rugby is not a coaching problem. Australian rugby is a personnel problem, a lack of uh, high performance development of players, uh, a lack of key of, of great players in key areas, especially at out half. And that is not the coach's fault. That is a long-term problem with Australian rugby that I've been talking on your show and writing about and banging on doors about. I'll give you an example of the problem in Australian rugby. About 2015, I was back home and I seen no kids coming through at 10. I said no, not one kid at the elite schoolboy level kicking with both feet. No one in the system down to the under-15s. I wrote to Australian rugby, New South Wales rugby, said, right, on Sundays, I'll organise a group of ex-Wallabies, some really good coaches of nines and tens. We'll take your kids. You nominate who they are. You identify them. We'll take them. We don't want any money. We'll even go to the country. We'll run, run sessions in the country and we'll try and develop the skills, crucial skills in our nines and tens so they're coming through. Don't want any money. Don't want any recognition. We just want to help the system. So we put it all off, contacted all the guys. We all said, yes, we went to Australian Rugby, New South Wales Rugby. They didn't even reply to the offer. They didn't even say, no, thanks. We're now in Australian Rugby where, we've, where the, they're, they're just desperate at 10. They're moving around and jumping around at 10, trying to find an answer. They've got a couple of good kids at the Waratahs, but they're not ready. And so they've gone with Noah Lioso again. And Noah's a great young man, but he's also not ready. He's, he's, and they've got to put him out there. So it, they're in a huge, huge uh, problem because of players. New Zealand rugby have got more players than you can shake a stick at. They just can't get it together for the last few months uh, on the field. They did get it together brilliantly, quite magnificently at Ellis Park. So two totally situations. One is an outrageous expectation from the New Zealand media that you, New Zealand, you can't have a bad run. You can't lose four or five games. You can't do it. Australia are uh, two from nine, I think they are now. So Australian rugby uh, and the Wallabies are in, a, are in a really deep hole. But that is not the coach's fault. The coach just has to deal with that. And I really do feel for Dave Rennie. It, it does feel with a lot of the nations, the tier one nations, that everything is a little bit cyclical. And when they need to get their house in order, they do it. Like Jer mentions, the shocker that the Springboks had in Dublin that night. And maybe, you know, ha- having a Lions tour coming down the track, maybe refocus the minds or just, you know, the fact that there was a World Cup coming down the track. Similar will probably happen with New Zealand before next year's World Cup. And it definitely feels that was the case with France looking ahead to their home World Cup next year that they were like, right, we need, we need to get our house in order for 2023. Do you think that the problems in Australia run deeper to the point where they won't be able to use the World Cup or an upcoming Lions tour to focus the minds and actually become maybe a, a top two, three nation in the world again? Yes, I, I think the, the, the problems in Australian rugby have been fo- uh, festering along for 15 years. And 
a lot of old heads like me have been trying desperately to tell boards and CEOs of the of the grave problems that are facing Australian rugby. To be fair to the the new um, chairman and CEO of Australian rugby, Andy Marinos is the chairman. Uh, he's the CEO, I'm sorry, now. And they have done a, a very, very good job the last 12 months. There's a new CEO at the Waratahs and a new coach again, one of my former staff members when, when Andy Friend was with me at the Waratahs uh, has has come in onto in, into the coaching role there and done a very, very good job. That is going to take time. But the problem is not at the professional level. The problem is below the professional level and what we're doing and how we're coaching our kids to come through. Again, you're not seeing kids that can kick both feet. You're not seeing enough kids who are so brilliant with their hands, their footwork. We're just not coaching them the right skills at 14, 15, 16. So what France did to get this great crop of of players that we're currently seeing is when they won the World Cup and they knew the 2020 uh, three World Cup was theirs. They went four, five years back, so five years beforehand, and they started investing in their under 16. So I'm at my little club here, Narbonne. They gave them half a million bucks to build a gym. So every club that had a good academy, a centre deformation in France, got a grant to build a gym. They got extra extra uh, grants for for equipment. The coaches were were, were upskilled. They really went out and said, we are going to do really well in our uh, national under-18s and our national under-20s, and we're going to identify eight, nine, ten kids that we're going to bring through for the next World Cup. And that's where Entomac and DuPont and Gregory Aldridge, that's where they came from, from this plan they had in place. Australian rugby needs the same. I can tell you, I've been trying to say that to Australian rugby. Whether they're doing it or not, look, I doubt it. I'm not sure that they're on to that right now because it is our high-performance department in Australia, and that's the one that worries about what's your production line. It's not necessarily worried about the Wallabies. That's that's the coach's job. It's the production line that leads into the Wallabies that is our problem and has been the problem for well over a decade. I want Australian rugby to do well because it's hanging on. Australian rugby is hanging on by its fingernails. It's hanging on with... Uh, uh, bums on seats, although they're, they're, it is reviving. I've got to give you know give them credit. They are trying. They are trying. The revival's coming. Club rugby, which is so important to to Australian rugby, which would be like the AIL, but it's different in in Sydney and Brisbane. That's all we've got. And the the Sydney and Brisbane commentators have really jumped in standard, and people are coming back to watch it. That's great. But we're not seeing that coming through and saying how the where's the Australian way of playing that we always had. And where are our great individuals? Where are our Mark Ellis? Where are our Michael Linus? Where are our Stephen Larkins? Where are our George Grigans? The production line has stopped making them. And that's really, really concerning. And that's what they've got to address. And I'm not so sure they are. What are their prospects this weekend then against South Africa? Because obviously, I, look, I haven't seen the, the talk in the South African media yet about what team is going to be picked. They're squad is huge at the moment and it's it's uh, bursting at the seams with quality and they've been able to manage the growth of a squad that is clearly has an eye on, on retaining their title um, and it looks like they have a, a big plan in place and it looks like they've got their house in order so what kind of a challenge do you expect them to pose for Australia? Staggering they've picked their best side um, the laws of rugby and the way the referees interpret those laws uh, which I really don't like so many of them but the South Africans have picked out 
a perfect negative game plan to exploit all of these horrid parts of our game, slowing it down, constant cross-field kicking where you're contesting in the air, a rushing defence that is usually offside a significant percentage of the game, unbelievably giant human beings, and allows them to pick six on the bench, six giant human beings on the bench, which was never the intention of the laws and only two backs on the bench. It was never the intention of the laws, but they, the coaches, and I'm not blaming the coaches, this is the coach's job, They've, their intellectual uh, uh, property and their intellectual uh, eliteness has allowed them to exploit and to see the loopholes in all those laws. And South Africa are playing a game plan that is really hard to beat. And you can see that uh, A, against the Lions, that horrible series, but they were brilliant at the horrid. And against against uh, New Zealand in that, that that's test at Ellis Park we were just talking about, New Zealand should have won that game going away by, by a huge amount. But the negativity of the South Africans, that constant cross-field kicking, the, the way they flack at the breakdown, the huge human beings they can bring on through the whole game and their ability to slow the game down and bring it to their own advantage, their maul, their scrummaging for penalties, that is really, really hard to beat. It, you know, the negative is always, is always easier to put in than the positive. And Australia have got a few guys back. They, they did have a horrific run of injuries. There's still no Michael Hooper. But I, I, I really would love to see the Wallabies win. I can't see it happening. They have a crisis at 10. Um, as I said before, um, James O'Connor has been dropped from the scrub squad. Uh, they they've brought back uh, uh, players of, of significant age. that They really don't know which way to turn at 10. And again, that's not the coach's fault. That's the system's fault. So I, I would really hope that the Wallabies can do well, but it's stacked against them because it's a really good Springbok side. They've got a game plan that is really hard to beat and they execute it quite brilliantly. And and then when they do make a break, they've got absolute lightning speed out in the flanks and a fullback. So the Wallabies are facing a really massive battle. When you refer to the, those loopholes that are being exploited, do you think that there needs to be a reaction to close up some of those loopholes? Oh, mate, um, I have been screaming at World Rugby to act. And and they don't even, World Rugby does not act. There's silence. There is absolute silence coming from World Rugby on all these topics, on why does a scrum take a minute and a half to pack and then collapses and we've got another minute and a half. So there's three minutes of bugger all. There's three minutes of us sitting around. You imagine, imagine going to the GAA uh, at Croker and just for three minutes the players are standing around. Like, everyone would be looking at each other. Going to Manchester United versus Liverpool in three minutes with the players just standing around doing nothing. Why? Why do we have to put up with that? Because there's a loophole in the laws. Why, why is it that we, we're just constantly seeing referees and TMOs stopping the game? You know, 25 penalties in a game. Why are we giving you – when I go for an intercept, what other game in the world where you go for an intercept in football or American football or basketball or, or GAA, you go for an intercept, doesn't work, hit your hand, it drops the ground, and you get sent from the field for 10 minutes. Like, it's just madness. How do we end up here? Eddie Jones said it after the test match in Sydney where, where the Wallabies got a player, Sinbin, who went for an intercept. If he had it taken the intercept, he would have gone the length of field, scored the try, and the Wallabies probably would have won that game. He goes for it, touches his fingers, he doesn't quite get it. He gets 10 minutes in the bin. Eddie Jones said after the game, he said the game's out of control. And it is. And World Rugby is not moving because World Rugby is this giant political organisation like the Olympic movement or, or uh, FIFA and you can't get people to agree. The South Africans are quite happy with the way the laws are, so they're not going to support it. 
The English probably aren't going to support it. So you can't get consistency around wanting to change. What's the problem? We've got a game now that goes for 80 minutes. The ball's in play for 35 minutes, sometimes 25 minutes. So what's happening for the rest of that time? It's absolutely staggering what's occurring in rugby at the moment. And, look, there are numerous ex-coaches and players around the world screaming for change, and we are getting none of it. And we're not only getting none of it, we're not getting any reaction at all. It's, it's like Rome is burning and we're getting zero comments from our governing body. It's a terrible, terrible state of affairs for the game. I, I actually wonder if an outside alien influence might be the only thing that fixes it. And that's why it's been interesting to watch the transformation in Formula One, for example, when the venture capital money came in and they were like, we actually need to open this up to new people. We need to make it more entertaining. We need to be less elitist. We need everybody to understand what's going on. That's why I actually think the injection of capital from outside might force the game to go, why, why, are we, why do we make it so boring? Why do, we, why do we make it so difficult to understand? Why have we uh, made it so that the referee needs to remember 2,000 different data points if he's going to referee correctly the putting of the ball into the scrum? I, that's my one hope here, Matt. Well, well there's an interesting one there. Too. Rugby is the only game in the world where the person who is on your TV screen most in the game is a referee. That, I mean, that's outrageous. You want, NFL has six six officials on the field. They're, they're in your camera, as in the centrepiece of your camera, for maybe 30 seconds of a match if, if, the, if the head official comes on and he has to talk to the people to explain a decision. Now, in rugby, the referee's there more than any other player. How can the referee be there more than Johnny, Johnny Sexton? Like, it's just crazy. Now, I hope what you're saying is right. Um, I, I, I do doubt it. I do doubt it. I'm not so sure that the, um, the money coming into rugby thinks like that. What I'm much more concerned is the, the money coming into rugby wants to change competition structures and uh, that have lasted for uh, well over a century and have been very, very good, in particular the Six Nations. I'm very concerned that South Africa will come into the Six Nations, which I think in the long run could be an absolute disaster for the okay. tournament. In the short term, probably make a few quid. But I'm not so sure. I, I hope you're right, Jeff. But somewhere, somewhere, it's got to happen. The other thing that may very well happen, especially with the World Cup coming up in America uh, after Australia, this is rugby's big chance to get into the states. They've got the MLR there, which is now, and it's going to a sixth season. It's sustainable. It's it's got good financial backing. It's going to stay. It's it's expanding. That's the major league rugby. It's a competition. Yeah. Professional rugby's been going. I certainly hope that that changes before we get to the States because if we get to the States and the game, it's like it is now, we will blow on one of the greatest opportunities rugby's ever had. All right. Matt, there's loads to talk about as ever. Great to have you with us. Thanks a million. Great there. Last one, Owen. I don't know if we'll talk again, mate. All the best. <laughs> been a pleasure working with you over the years, mate. Good luck in uh, in South America and your travels. You too. Good to joy. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Take care. See you, mate. It's Matt Williams there. You starting to get emotional? Yeah. What's that going to be? What, what would it look like? It'll look the same as it looks? Yeah, yeah, just internalise everything. Why do you that's think you do that? That's, that's healthy, isn't it? Because you're an Irish male and you've no, <laughs> you've no choice? Exactly, yeah. yeah. No, I'll, I will probably uh, I'll probably break at some point. But just Ideally on air, Owen. Yeah. That's like the, the whole the point here. Like There's like no point in you breaking off air. Getting, getting me before half nine any morning probably isn't the time to, to break me. No. No. When will you break? So, just, so we can, just so we can be there with some cameras. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It'll it'll happen at some point. Uh, Richard Redball says, 
A red-haired Irishman has a job in any bar in the world, so you'll be grand. Uh, have you... I hope you have a... Oh, I can't read that one. If you're going to Brazil... <laughs> <laughs> Immediately goes onto YouTube to check live comments. Can't read that one without us all getting fired. If you're going to Brazil, you give Tim Vickery a shout for South American Games. Ask Shifty Labs. Yeah, yeah, 100%. He's on your list. Uh, Roadshow in Medellin confirmed. I would come to that. Yeah, yeah. My 13-year-old daughter says, no, it says, oh no, Owen is the glue. Thank you very much that I am trying to... Popular with the teenage girls, Owen. <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't hear that entire comment. Uh, I'm trying to... Um, I'm tr- I'm trying to find the comment that you wouldn't read out. Sorry. No, no, don't, don't, because you, 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 you will definitely break. <laughs> uh, it's 8.34 this morning. If you want to get in touch with us, you can, you can text us 87 180 And if you're going <laughs> to write stuff in the YouTube comments, at least make it something that I can read out without having, good, you know... Good life advice. Uh, Ron Burgundy. Uh, <clears throat> Frank, who's obviously feeling it, says, Morning, folks. Oh, and I couldn't bring myself to be here all week. It's just too much to deal with. One question that needs answering, though, is after South America, will you be returning, i.e. hiatus? Yes, I will, unless something extraordinary happens. What does that mean? Like, i um referring to uh, Chris Cal's comments, unless I find, uh, you know, uh, a very good establishment. <laughs> Uh, Liam Dunn says this is going to be tough for Jer as the days get closer to Owen's departure you can clearly see Jer getting more emotional by the day yeah. there was a lot of tone policing going on about our announcement last week in the comments they were like oh I mean you know I wish it had just been a bit more emotional and less jokey I was like what? I mean we've got a whole week of this yeah exactly I know I think I think we did well I think that, that suits me anyway James Carew says the show and Owen's laid back nature sometimes means we don't appreciate what a great and knowledgeable broadcaster he is particularly during lockdown off the ball excelled itself you'll be missed that's a very kind comment thank you very much I need uh, you to power rank your highlights Owen the um, power rank my highlights uh, I de- definitely think my uh, highlight of my broadcasting career was uh, during lockdown but it was like the, the grim uh, 20, start of 2021 lockdown and I kind of got like sick of like watching football but you know we hadn't got sick of obviously doing the show so we were doing the show some Friday morning and Spurs were playing um, Europa League the night before and uh, Martin Lipton was, was on talking about uh, their game against Wolfsburg and he was saying you know that they should have beaten them by a lot more and I was like Martin I mean this is uh, the third place team in the Bundesliga I mean this is a very very good result for Spurs any win is a good win he's like what are you talking about mate this is Wolfsburger in Austria this is not Wolfsburg <laughs> <laughs> I was like well, I've just been found out. <laughs> All right. If you're ever going to challenge somebody, make sure you uh, know what the hell you're talking about. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I mean, it, like, look, it was, we all partied, right? Yeah, exactly. Or we all just, you know, watched what was going on. Probably, I was probably watching like It's a Sin or something around that time rather than watching football. Well, do you remember it was like every night there was football? Exactly, that was said, the problem. Oh, this is great, there's football every night and it really wasn't. No, it wasn't. Like I could, I, I picked, you, you sort of started to pick and choose your moments and one of those moments I did not choose was Tottenham Hotspur, Tottenham Hotspur against Wolfsburger and every time I see their name down I'm like, I'll never forget. It was pretty, uh, Austria. pretty shocking, yeah. <laughs> pretty embarrassing. It's uh, 8.37. Now, Sky Glass has officially launched in Ireland as of today. We got a sneak peek um, yeah. not two weeks ago at this stage. 
Uh, it's a pretty impressive bit of kit. Yeah, it's unreal. It's like um, your your TV and your um, and your and your Skybox all in one. Unbelievable sound yeah. on, on the thing as well. It's kind of like surround sound, but it's just in one box. It doesn't yeah. really make any sense. And you can you can control it with your voice as well. Uh, so basically, you can sit on your couch and be overwhelmed by sound and vision, and never have to move again. If you could just get somebody to go to the fridge for you, it'd be perfect. Anyway, it is officially launched in Ireland as of today, Thursday, the twenty fifth of August. They're celebrating the launch with an event in Dundrum Town Centre with none other than Codaline and I'm delighted to say Finney from Codaline the drummer is with us Finney good morning to you how are you? Good morning lads how's thanks? Yeah you are very welcome um, musicians on sports shows are always like oh so what is your sporting credentials who do you support? <laughs> yeah so uh, they said they said they were like oh yeah they want to do off the ball I was like yeah that's fine I was like uh, I don't watch really football I'm more like rugby golf F1 uh, they're Mark also sports that's fine that's okay band, so. yeah I know yeah so it's like I, I do like sports Steve and Jay are the lost causes so that's why they weren't put up for this interview because <laughs> they, they were like what's a football <laughs> so uh, so yeah no I mean Mark's, Mark's a diehard Liverpool fan and has been for donkeys oh, and, we really uh, wanted him today a, then so we could like you know give him a bit of I shit know, this week yeah yeah exactly yeah no I was uh a lot of my mates are there's kind of half my group are Liverpool fans half of them are Man United fans and there's a couple of Arsenal lads in there as well so uh, yeah the slaggings that were going on in the WhatsApp group after the match the other night was uh, yeah, it was pretty funny as a matter of interest I, I noticed that everybody I met on uh, Tuesday morning was a Man United fan and everybody was telling me proudly about their Manchester United mm. fandom <laughs> People who I had not known watched football for uh, the best part of a decade. Like, did they all cry? Closet the Man U fans. Yeah. Yeah. Closet Man U fans. Now, to be fair, I was a Man U fan when I was a little kid, like kind of during the kind of 19, early 1990s, like kind of 94 to like 98. I was a big Man United fan and then just kind of got out of football. And I don't know how I got into rugby because nobody in my house watched rugby or I don't know why I think I just I put on a couple of pounds and I was like I can't be a footballer I'll, I'll be a prop <laughs> <laughs> did you play? Uh, yeah I played school boy level and I played for uh, Malahides and Setonians for a little while um, but yeah I played school boy from like kind of first year up until fifth year I think I didn't I didn't during my leaving cert year um, and then kind of I kind of stopped altogether kind of because drumming and music became just such a bigger part of my life and uh, the risk of being injured or kind of spraining my ankle or spraining my wrist or something like that just became too great because I wouldn't be able to play drums. So uh, so I kind of just knocked it on the head then, but now I'm just a, a couch fan. <laughs> that's, that's totally legit. You do need your fingers uh, to be a drummer and you probably end up with them broken quite regularly if you're playing in the front row. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I moved from prop to flanker and I uh, had a couple of sprained ankles and I popped out uh, my thumb a couple of times. Um, so, yeah, I was like, right, well, I can't do that because then I couldn't play drums for a while. And then, yeah, obviously, as music became a bigger and bigger part of my life, it was like, yeah, it was uh, the risk was too great. So, yeah. I had to hang up my boots at an early age. Which, <laughs> Not that I was very good now, but like, yeah. Which is a, a more taxing act on uh, the, your own cardiovascular fitness? Is it uh, 80 minutes in the front row or, or playing a gig as a drummer? 
Oh, definitely Edmonds, the front row. I'm sitting down playing drums. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'd like, I, in terms of like the rest of the band, I'd probably get more of a workout than everybody else does but on stage. But, uh, but yeah, no, playing rugby for, for 80 minutes is definitely more taxing than playing the gig for an hour and a half, like, you know, uh, sitting down, just flailing my arms around and my legs. So, yeah, it's not a different kettle of fish altogether. What's the crack with Dundrum today? Is it um, invite only? Is it too late for anybody who wants to go and see, or can you still rock up? I have no idea. I haven't a clue. We, we only kind of found out it was in Dundrum the other day. I was like, all right, okay. Someone told me that it was going to be in Wheelands. And, uh, and yeah, so I haven't a clue. I have no idea. I, I know Sky were kind of giving away tickets to people, um, but... Yeah, sure. You could probably just chance your arm, like you know. Well, this is Ireland. This, uh, Everybody loves a, yeah. a chancer, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like we, we like any time we're around tour, and like we, so we could be somewhere in the middle of Germany or somewhere in the middle of America, in the middle of nowhere. You'll always just get Irish lads and and ladies like chanting their arm, trying to get into a show or trying to get backstage and meet us. And a couple of times it's worked, and we're just like, is there no security at these venues? And they're like. <laughs> Just because they have an Irish accent, they'll be like, oh, yeah, Jess, I know the lads. I went to school with them and all that. And all of a sudden, these random Irish people show up in our dressing room. We're like, hello. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And they're like, oh, Jesus, lads, you going for a pint. We're like, well, we kind of have this thing that we have to do in, in a few minutes. Like, you know, so... Yeah, so yeah, it's safe you just show up and chance the arm, you know, what's the world going to happen? Your um, touring schedule, obviously post-COVID, you're back traveling the world again. Um, is there this kind of new sense of energy behind those tours because of everything that's happened? Like we were just talking two minutes ago, football was on every night. Owen, even Owen got bored of watching football every night. <laughs> <laughs> so what's it? What's that like post-COVID been like? Uh, yeah, it's it's been great. Like we we head off now uh, on tour around Europe for seven weeks, um, starting in October, uh, and we're gone for seven weeks. And then we're home, and then we go fly, do a festival in Indonesia. We fly home, and then do another festival in Portugal, and that kind of takes us up to like the middle of December. So, uh, yeah, we're absolutely buzzing. It's it's like musicians and like their livelihood it's kind of like it's where the majority of musicians make kind of like 80 or 90 percent of their income is from playing live gigs and going on tour so to have that kind of completely shut down and was shut down for the longest time like you know it's uh great that it's finally kind of getting back up on its feet like you know and you can see the appetite like there's there's the amount of gigs that were on during this summer like you know uh, in all the parks all over dublin and all over ireland you know was phenomenal so yeah, the appetite is definitely there from the audience perspective, and it's definitely there for on the musician side to actually want to go and play all these shows. So yeah, we're uh, we're buzzing. We can't wait. Like you know, we just kind of can't wait to get back out there. And yeah, the interaction with fans is kind of yeah, it's what it's all about. You know, so we're really looking forward to that. I see you played a couple of German festivals this summer, and you've got like six Germany dates this winter. Is, yeah. is there something about Germany and Codeline <clears throat> that um, that perhaps we're not totally aware of here? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, with like Germany has always been very good to us. Um, and yeah, playing six shows in Germany, it's it's a massive country as well. I suppose you know. Um, so yeah, I suppose that's kind of that's it. Really, I, I don't know if they have a big affinity to Ireland or not, but yeah, but they seem to like what we do anyway. So, um, but it, that's like there's loads of countries that surprise us. Like Portugal, we hadn't been there ever, and we we. We played like a kind of afternoon slot at a festival about five, about five years ago. 
Um, and we had never been before and we, we got put on like an afternoon slot at this festival and we were like, oh, it'll be grand. We we're in a tent. It'll be like, there might be a thousand people there. And there was like 15,000 people in this huge tent and the place was rammed. Wow. And we went back the following year and headlined the festival. So it does, that kind of happens in, in kind of certain pockets around the world. Like, and it kind of completely takes us by surprise, you know, because we see we see you see some interactions on like your social media or you can look at your spotify numbers and see like well it's only when you get to these places and you kind of see the reaction from the crowds you're like oh okay we're like they like us over here you know so it's it's uh it's amazing that we get to do that like you know do you play better in front of those big crowds it's a stupid question but it's like it, it makes some sense yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, there's definitely there's kind of there's pros and cons to both, I suppose. Uh, like doing a big, doing a big show, whether it's in front of five thousand or fifteen thousand or twenty thousand people, that's incredible. Like you know, we played Malahide Castle during the summer, and that was twenty three thousand people. Like so, that was immense for us, you know. Um, but then in March of this year, we were playing in the Olympia, and we did two nights there, and it was like eleven hundred people a night. So. Um, yeah, those kind of small, intimate shows are amazing because it's a totally different vibe, like, you know. Um, and then when you're playing, like, a festival in front of thousands of people, like, it's, like, kind of, yeah, big sound, big wall of sound that you can kind of hide behind, like, you know. And whereas uh, it's something small and intimate, yeah, there's, you, there's nowhere to hide, so it's kind of more raw, I suppose. But, yeah, there, there, there's both pros and cons to both of them, like, you know. Well, listen, Viddy, if um, uh, a red-headed Irishman rocks up when you're playing South America next year, it'll be this lads. And uh, absolutely, do do try and just you know make sure that he's he's clean at least and has a little bit of cash in his pocket to to get Look out for the tricolor. And if you need some credit on his phone, maybe you can stick a tenner on it for him. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely, more than welcome. Thanks a million, Viddy. Cheers and best of luck. Cheers, lads. Thanks very much. All the best. Have a good day. And uh, don't try and blag into that. I've just found out. So uh, Sky are celebrating the launch today of Sky Glass with an event in Dundrum Town Centre. It's an exclusive gig for competition winners. For anybody that isn't lucky enough to win tickets, the whole event will be live streamed just outside the venue in Pembroke Square on a fantastic display of a wall of Sky Glass panels in the Sky Glass Dome, showcasing the amazing picture quality and sound capabilities of Sky Glass. 848, John Duggan is with us. John, good morning to you. Jerno, how are we doing? How are you? Great yourselves? I'm very good. Time for virtual insanity. Yeah. You have entered power drive. Oh, wow. We are on a hot streak, John. 25 to 1, 16 to 1 the last two weeks. That music sounds uh, a little bit better, doesn't it, when you're winning? Uh, so, every day I'm shafele. Every day I'm shao shafele. Put up on the screen there this uh, week's uh, tip and this week's winner will be Xander Shafele in the Tour Championship. He's the only bet this week uh, because there's only 29 players in the field at East Lake in Atlanta for the final tour event in the PGA Tour regular season. Um, this is a strange one in that there's a handicap. In that Scotty Scheffler starts this week with 10 under par because he's the leading point scorer for the FedEx Cup. Patrick Hantley is then next on eight under par. Then Xander is on six under par. And Rory McIlroy and Cameron Smith among those on four under par. So Scotty Scheffler is a nine to four favourite. And Rory, for example, has to make up six shots on Scheffler. 
I'm going for Shao Vela um, because uh, he's got the best record of the course. For anybody who's played over 12 rounds, he's got the best record, a stroke average of just over 67. He won this as a rookie at East Lake in 2017 because the course suits his accurate uh, long driving off the tee. Uh, he's playing very well. He was third last week. He won the Travelers Championship and Scottish Open this summer. Also the JP McManus Pro-Am. And uh, I just think that... The horses for courses pick I think for him to finish in the top five he's already third starting off he's only got uh, Cantlay and Scheffler to beat in front of him and I think he plays the course better than they do so I think he can overtake them and at six and a half to one I think he's an each way bet to nothing for ten each way over virtual money so uh, Xander Schaffler is the only one we're looking at this week lads okay it's it's such a weird field it's such a weird tournament yeah. that it's yeah. yeah it is a bit of an odd one yeah. um, so there's no point in trying to complicate it and look at it without the strokes or going into players at 200 to 1 that might get fifth or something just keep it simple and you've got to pick one of the top ones and the one I picked is Xander ok Xander Schaffler this week's headline tip and yeah. only tip at and only tip yeah. alright anything else going on in your world JD? Uh, not much lads I'm looking forward to the Champions League draw because Spurs are in it at 5 o'clock in Istanbul so I'll probably be planning a trip uh, off the base of that like um, late October early November um, so just really interested to see who they face uh, we have what Chelsea City, Spurs and Liverpool in there, Celtic and Rangers, none of them can meet each other. Um, there's only two weeks between September and November when there's not Champions League football because right. they're squeezing it in because of the uh, World Cup in Qatar. Uh, no Russian teams, 32 teams, eight groups of four. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing who, who we face and who the other teams face. Is there a specific away trip that you're keen on? Uh, any of them, really. Well, I'm looking here. I mean, I'd love to see the Allianz Arena in Munich. Uh, I would love to see... Um, Dortmund would be good, wouldn't it? Dortmund, I've never been to the Vassfeldstadion. I'm looking here at uh, Napoli. I'd love to go to Naples. Oh, bit yeah. of Neapolitan pizza, bit of, um, bit of edge. Back of motorbikes. Um, Copenhagen would be nice. Bit of Carlsberg. Expensive. Uh, expensive, yeah. Uh, one Carlsberg for the evening. Um, Maccabee Haifa would be nice. Where would you go to Rangers? Ooh, I don't know. I prefer to go to Rangers as a, a as to the Old Firm Derby. I'd love to go to the Ibrox for the Old Firm Derby and get in there with the Celtic fans. Um, that's one of my things I'd like to do I've never been to the Camp Nou don't know about you guys you've been to oh, Camp yeah. Nou oh yeah 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 definitely Barcelona is such a great city yeah I've been to the city but never the Camp Nou so even Turin and actually no we're in the same pot as them Dan uh, so yeah yeah no any, any look any Champions League I remember going to Real Madrid Juventus in 2008 the week Obama was elected my flight was 30 euro with Ryanair and my ticket was 30 euro I was in the corner flag and it was uh, just great to see a Champions League game at a group stage with such cheap ticket prices. I don't know what they're being right now. That was 14 years ago, but um, they're always good. Any of these things are, are great to see, just to go somewhere in the in, in the European. When it's not too much on it, obviously it's been to Ajax for the semi-final a couple of years ago. But yeah, Istanbul, the final, 10th of June next year. Long road. Yeah, very good. John, good stuff. All right, lads. More from John, of course, on Saturday afternoon on Off the Ball on News Talk at 8.52. A reminder, we need your help. We're currently recruiting for a survey online. If you listen to us on any platform at least a couple of times a week, we'd love to hear from you and ask you some questions. You can sign up on Twitter, check our pinned tweet, or if you're an Instagram user, our save stories, we'll also post across TikTok and Facebook. So plenty of opportunity for you. Failing that, if you're totally desperate, you can WhatsApp us 0879-180-180. We'll send it out to you. There are three separate prizes of €100 Euros up for grabs for anybody who takes part. It is time for You Had to Be There. It was so unexpected. You had to be there. Covering Celtic at that time was a brilliant thing. The atmosphere at Parkhead was always great. You had to be there. Nobody ever talks about this game. Nobody saw it. Uh, you had to be there. Mm, delighted to say our guest this week is uh, Carl Dennehy. Carl, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. Very good, Ger. Um Your list is absolutely sensational. You've been to some good stuff. 
I have, thankfully, yeah, across sports. Obviously, it's heavily athletics uh, slanted, but uh, in, in a fan capacity, I suppose, I've got to some other good stuff, and that tends to be how whatever money I earn writing about athletics, I tend to blow it by uh, going to watch other sport with friends and family and things like that. Uh, apart from athletics, because um, I guess sometimes it might feel like a busman's holiday, what other sports do you like going to? Pretty much anything. I mean, I love horse racing. I've been to Cheltenham a few times. I've been loved tennis, been to the French Open, been to the US Open there. Um, never been to golf, been to a good bit of soccer and rugby. And as a Limerick man, I've obviously been to my fair share of hurling heartbreak down through the years. And of course, uh, lots of rugby games. So yeah, they're, they're the typical. But, uh, you know, I'd watch two slugs race up a wall happily. Where are we going to start with your list? Where do you want to start? What's, what's number one for you here? I think we'll start with the Tokyo Olympics 2020. Well, 2020, but it happened obviously in 2021. And uh, Karsten Warholm's 400 meter hurdles world record. Um, I was talking to a friend earlier in the year, and this probably says a lot about how sad my life is. But I said, there's only three times in my life I've been actually, I can remember at least being absolutely speechless. One was when I was looking at the Grand Canyon. One was when I was looking at Iguazu Falls for the first time. And then the third one was when Karsten Warholm went across the line in the 400 meter hurdles final and 45.94 flashed up on the screen. And it was just absolutely a time that was just absolutely unbelievable. And unfortunately, there were no fans there in that Tokyo Olympic Stadium, but the few hundred journalists and team members and everyone there, it was just, it was the same reaction all around. It was just speechless. It was just no one knew what to say because this was a time that kind of didn't make sense to anyone but it was you know to, to many of our minds the greatest race in Olympic history I remember we had you on I think OTBAM that morning actually a few hours after that run and I think it had just completely transcended um, the sport even that day everybody who had kind of been up in the middle of the night maybe to, to watch the Irish athletes was there maybe rowing on that night or something there was definitely a reason uh, why there was uh, Irish people up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden this thing was on TV and it was like holy crap this is absolutely bonkers even like Ry Benjamin and his time uh, coming in in second place was just uh, astonishing as well like what was this potentially like where does this rank in terms of the, the greatest races or the greatest finals on an Olympics track I mean I think it's I think it's probably number one and I think what makes it probably number one I mean individually obviously we've had incredible performances if you say in Bolt's uh, world record to win in Beijing I think what was that 969 he ran celebrating early um, obviously, you have the Jesse Owens, you have the Bob Beemans, um, you know, his long jump back in 1968. But a lot of those great Olympic performances were individual brilliance. I think what made this race special was that it was actually a competitive race. Still, the last 20 metres, people didn't really know who was going to win. And you had two, not just one athlete, but two athletes going where no other athlete had gone before. Um, the world record at that time, until that summer, it was 46.78. And then Warholm, as many kind of had expected him to do at some point, carved it down to 46.70. And that's kind of, you know, the normal world record jump, like less than a tenth of a second in a one-lap race. No one, just absolutely no one. Everyone thought, yeah, maybe the world record could go in Tokyo, but it was, like I said, 46.70. I don't know anyone who thought they'd see 45 flash up on the screen. And then to see that Ray Benjamin finished second, I think he was 46.1 something, you know, still more than half a second under the world record. Um, and someone, Ray Benjamin gave one of the great quotes after that. They said, what would you have said to someone if 
you, you or they had told you before the race that you were going to run 46-1 and lose. And he said, I would have probably punched him in the face and told <laughs> him to get out of the room. Um, and that, I think, summed it up, you know, in terms of you can beat everyone else in history by such an astonishing margin. But if there's one guy who goes where no one else has gone, you end up with the silver medal. And poor Ray Benjamin was devastated with that. But, yeah, it was just, just one of those in athletics – History, I can never remember a race that good where two men, two men have just completely gone beyond what anyone thought possible and did it together on the same day, the same track. The fact that there's nobody there as well, like it's so weird that you know we lived through such a weird period where we were talking about this earlier. There was football on every night, and uh, you know it was discombobulating. But this is an Olympic Games, and everybody's so happy. I think that there's something for us to watch, and that these athletes are going to get the opportunity a year later to to do their thing but like so much controversy in Japan about whether or not the Olympics should go ahead as well so all of that kind of feeds into this backdrop what's the actual pre-race atmosphere like do you remember like is is there is there tension is everybody kind of aware that we're about to see something momentous or uh, I, I, do, do you have any recollection of that at all I kind of I can I can just remember from the journalist point of view just being exhausted and kind of almost going there knowing right this could be big but kind of thinking oh I think it was like it was probably around the Wednesday the second week obviously the Olympics so you're talking maybe 12 13 days into the games like a 20 day game so kind of everyone fans spectators whatever was kind of like suffering a bit of Olympics fatigue at that point and I remember it was a morning session um, so obviously you're still shaking off the grogginess and you're getting to the stadium and like, oh, and there wasn't really anything big else on that morning. So that was kind of the only show in town. But I just remember, yeah, you know, nothing at the Olympics kind of felt like an Olympics because you're used to that atmosphere, you're used to that kind of rumble and the crackle of anticipation going around the stadium as a Many of the other events, I suppose, I'll be talking about showed. But that morning, it was just eerie silence. But obviously, you knew this was the big show. Um, and then afterwards, I remember, like, you know, even though there were some people cheering, even some of the journalists were probably not being journalists and cheering along as the race happened. But then afterwards, just that complete disbelief going around the stadium with the few hundred who were there. And I remember my friend, Phelan Kelly, who was an Irish team coach, was over in the back straight in the athlete section watching and he just, he, Warholm was obviously doing his, those weird laps of honour where, with his flag, where there was no one actually there to salute. But he was just going down the back straight in silence, you know, waving at the handful of people. And Phelan just ran down to the edge and he just shouted at Warholm. He's like, man, that is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. And Warholm just kind of smiled at him and said, well, it's the best thing I've ever done in my life. Um, so it was funny to, to get those little interactions among the few. And I think really as a journalist, it was one of those moments where you're like, you know, there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, millions perhaps even around the world watching this who would love to have said they were there to witness this. The athletics nerds like myself especially. Um, and to kind of have been there, you really did walk away going, wow, I was so, so lucky to have seen that in the flesh. Mm. I think he did a, an interview on, on um, with, with David Gillick actually straight away after. Like, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm mistaken on that one. So is it like more of an intimate Olympic Games than, than ever before like with, with regards to access even though that doesn't make any sense because there was still the world media there but did you find that you got more insights than you usually would have got at an Olympic Games last year in Tokyo? For sure yeah um, like I went to I remember going to gymnastics with one of my friends Gerard O'Donnell who was again working with the Irish team and we went to the women's all-round gymnastics final and again no crowds there a good few team members obviously showing up but obviously you'd normally have several thousand screaming fans and we just sat down 
towards like the VIP section, like probably two rows in the front. And we were kind of laughing at each other going like, you know, we know relatively nothing about gymnastics. And we we're saying there's, there's gymnastics fans around the world who would probably pay 10 grand to be in these seats, like front row to watch Simone Biles take on the Russians and all that, like, you know, the very best of the best of all time. Um, and then it was fascinating just hearing the cheers. I think things you couldn't normally hear when you're even there in a journalist capacity, even if you've really good seats. And I remember going to the basketball. I watched USA France in the basketball. And that really stood out in terms of a different experience because I'd been to maybe five or six NBA games when I'd been over in the States. And obviously, even when you get down in good seats, you just the noise is too much that you can't really hear the team talking to each other. But I remember being three rows from the front and there have been about 50 people in the arena when I was watching USA play France. This was in the this wasn't the final. More people obviously went to the final, but in the kind of group stages of the Olympic tournament. And just hearing all the different calls, how much trash the players were talking to each other, how much of a, a pain in the neck Draymond Green was um, to everyone else, just like he'd swat a ball away, then he'd just be like, get that shit out of here. And um, just things like that, things you probably, you can see they're talking trash on TV, but then when you hear it up front, and then I suppose the physicality of it as well, what stood out to me at the basketball in terms of just the, the absolute whacks and the, the crunch of the players' bodies as they would hit the ground after, you know, swatting a ball away or something like that. Um, so, yeah, it was a, it was a, actually like, while obviously 99% of it was worse because you love that atmosphere, there was that little bits where you're like, oh, I've never heard, you know, Steve Kerr kind of make these calls before. And I never heard that as the shot clock is counting down, everyone on the bench is, is counting so the player is aware of it which is something, despite watching basketball for years, I'd never realised. And so there was a lot of kind of, I suppose, been athletics my whole life. There wasn't too much in that that was new to me, but watching the other sports, they're the lack of crowds. They're counting out loud. You can, you can hear them counting out loud, can you? Yeah. yeah I didn't yeah. know that either. As the, as, right. as the shot clock gets down to like five, all the bench and the coach were just like, five, four, three. Right. So the player is aware of it, which is something I didn't know before. Right, okay. Uh, Leo Messi's next. Um, wh- what what have you picked for Leo Messi? This is against Deportivo Alaves. Yeah, it's a random one. It's certainly not, not one that will make the top 50 probably highlights of Leo Messi's career, but I suppose it is you had to be there and this is the one time in my life that I was there for Leo Messi. Um, I suppose I'll tell a bit of the story behind this. I went to Barcelona in September 2019 on a holiday with a friend and we were just there and this, I think the season hadn't quite started. Maybe it was August. But we said we must come back to this great city and go to a game and we said... So I kind of rounded up basically a group of lads in the WhatsApp group over the couple of months that followed and said, lads, come on, we need to go see Messi. You know, he's into his 30s. Who, not, who knows how much longer we're going to be able to see him? And he said, we have to tick this box. So we called it Project Messi. So five of us went over for a weekend just before Christmas, stayed in a great hostel and uh, went on the lash over in Barcelona. But we went to watch deeply hungover. We went to watch Barcelona play Deportivo Alaves and just a standard La Liga game. Sunday afternoon um, and you know the tickets were like 50, 60 euro and we all just said we've said for two years now three years we said that was the best money we've ever spent because um, yeah just watching him in the flesh like we'd obviously all watched him for so many years hundreds of times on TV but actually being there, it, it showed to me what a different experience it can be watching live sport because obviously there wasn't too much other talent. Luis Suarez was playing, I think, as well, but we were all just watching Messi most of the game and watching what he did. And what stood out to me was just how lazy he was on the pitch. You know, he he stood still when other players were walking. He walked when other players were jogging and he jogged when other players were sprinting. 
And he kind of just would drift out of the game for like 10 minute periods and just be kind of standing on the sideline, just watching things. And you're like, if this was anyone but Lionel Messi, the coach would be roaring at him that he's a lazy fecker. Like, but when it is Messi, um, obviously he springs to life when it matters most. And it was 2-1, probably, I think it must have been 70, 75 minutes into the game. And Messi just picks up this ball. Again, having been doing nothing for a while, but he picks up this ball maybe 35, 40 yards out. There's two defenders straight in front of him. There's one right beside him, like stuck to him to his right. And then there's one more, probably two or three metres to the left. And obviously I've had to watch this on YouTube before I came on today to remember that goal. Um, And then just in a position that other players, 99.9% of players would not find the space to shoot or find an outlet to get out of that situation. He just saw the little space, the two metre gap to his left, just moved the ball one metre to his left and then just out of nowhere, just unleashed his shot from probably well outside the box and bang, in it goes. And I remember just being up in the stands with the lads and we were like, wow, you know, in terms of, it wasn't an especially great game for Messi until that point, but then it was like 2-1 to 3-1. And all of us just went, yeah, that was that was worth the, the trek over here. And that was, that, that illustrated perfectly, I suppose, the greatness of Lionel Messi, where it was like something a player no one else could do and just one moment of magic made it all worthwhile. I think people are probably still going to make the trip to Paris this year to see him in a run-of-the-mill game. You just want to be guaranteed that he's going to play because, as you say, the opportunities for this for people now to go and say, I saw Leo Messi play, are getting smaller and smaller. They're telescoping pretty quickly. Um, I've just watched the goal on YouTube as well. It's kind of... Um, it is one of those... Like Messi's greatness, I think, was the, the thing that inspired everybody was when he was able to dribble past five or six players from inside his own. And it was like, wow, nobody can do this. But they're the goals that helped him rack up 30, 35, 40, 45 goals a season where it's like he's shooting and you don't expect him to shoot. And all of a sudden the ball's past the keeper like that. So that's a very good one. Um, Usain Bolt, I, I, was there a list in your head where Usain Bolt wasn't going to be on the list? <laughs> no, it had to be. Um, yeah, I'd seen Bolt. When had I seen him? I missed his obviously greatest year, I suppose, 20, 2009, 2010, or 2008, 2009 Olympics and World Championships when he was at his absolute peak. And then I started kind of getting into the journalism game around kind of 2013, 2012. And um, so I was there for his World Championships in 2013, 2015, 2017. And obviously, I'd seen him at some other events as well in the intervening years and stuff. Um, and I think I picked out this one because this was probably one of the best sporting events I'd been to. Um, now, obviously, everyone in the career of Bolt will remember the Beijing Olympics and the Ber- Berlin World Championships, the world records, the, the, when he was at his peak. But if there is a race to me that sums up the greatness of Usain Bolt, it's 2015 in Beijing. And, you know, it's the classic cliche of uh, the definition of a good team is winning when they're not at their best. And this was Bolt winning when he wasn't at his best. He was in shocking form all year. He'd been riddled with injuries. And Justin Gatlin had come back and he was like 34 years old, I think, 33, 34 at the time, and was just running unbelievably all year. Um, he was running like 9.74 and Bolt looked like he was struggling to break, you know, 9.95. But he was kind of slowly creeping forward with his form and obviously everyone knew Bolt, if he gets back, you know, he's a freak. He, he might just pull this off. But going into that World Championships, I mean, everyone thought this is Gatlin's year. Surely this is Gatlin's year, the form he's in, the form Bolt is in. And Gatlin dominated the heats, absolutely crushed the semi-final, easing up. But I remember... 
a friend had said to me who works in athletics and an athletes manager from the Netherlands, he'd said to me, he was like, in this final in Beijing, he was like, you, Justin Gatlin is going to experience something he's never experienced all year. And that's just the idea and the feeling of Usain Bolt running him down. Um, and obviously, tightness is the biggest enemy for a sprinter. You know, you run your fa- fastest when you're relaxed. And all year, Gatlin had been relaxed and killing it, basically. But then for the first time all year, this was the first time he met Usain Bolt. He probably psychologically knew, even if I'm in front by two meters and 50 meters, this guy is coming. And it happened textbook like that. Gatlin got out. He was running his perfect race up to 50 meters. But Bolt had some, was just producing not his A-grade effort. It was a B-level race for Usain Bolt. He ran 9.79, you know, which is obviously not that quick for a guy who's run 9.5. But 50 metres on, there came Usain Bolt just creeping towards Gatlin. And what it led to was Gatlin tightening up. And if you watch the race from like 20 metres out, Gatlin maybe has half a metre at that point. All he has to do is maintain his form, stay upright and time his dip for the finish. But what happens? He's terrified by that thought of Usain Bolt coming at him, which he was. And he starts straining, leaning forward to the line and that completely kills his momentum. And then once they get to the finish, it's 9.79 for Bolt and then one hundredth of a second he beat Gatlin by. And I just remember being in the stadium. That was one of the first times where I kind of experienced the true magic of the 100 metres, which is just that the silence before the gun is just such a cool moment. I suppose in rugby terms, it's like that eerie Coleman Park conversion silence. And um, it's just so strange. But to see it with, you know, 60,000 people in Beijing and just everyone just waiting for this explosive 9.8 second race, um, it was something to behold. Did the 100 come before the 200? Because they obviously they go up against each other in both those races uh, in uh, that championships. Yeah, yeah, the 100 is always first, yeah, yeah, so that was, yeah, and it was just, I think it was, you know, I suppose, I always think the the hero versus villain thing is always overplayed, you know, like, just because Gatlin has tested positive, he's like a, a demon, and because Bolt hasn't, he's, you know, he's an angel, this sort of thing, and you that narrative was a bit tiring at the time, and a bit kind of like, hmm, you know, how are you so sure about everything here, and sort of way, but at the same time, it was kind of, it was... You know, there was no one, even personality-wise, there was very few people in that stadium or around the athletics world who were watching that race who didn't want Usain Bolt to win. Um, and the fact he did it against such ridiculously stacked odds, he was clearly not in as good a shape as Justin Gatlin, but he, he found a way to win when not at his best, which I suppose is the, which made him the greatest of all time. Okay, so uh, you you made a reference to the heartbreak years that uh, being a Limerick man has um, inflicted on you for such a long period, and you know we'd probably be having knocking a bit of crack out of that if you were say a Mayo football fan right now. But it turns out things turned, um, and uh, you know no one has any sympathy for those heartbreak years that you suffered anymore because you actually are a fan of one of the greatest teams of all time. It turns out, but we didn't know that at the time, and I think their breakthrough win is your is your next on the list. Is that right? That's right, 2018 All-Ireland win. And um, I suppose we're picking out individual moments of brilliance as well here. And I think what stands out to me with this game is that, you know, you think of most All-Irelands and everyone kind of thinks of a score, like a goal, a point, something like that. But I think what stands out to me anyway, and I'm sure a lot of Limerick people, was not any particular score, obviously. It, 
you know, there were great scores in that game. But what stood out to me was the catch. You know, it was Tom Condon's catch. I think it was seven. There was a lot of injury time. I think it was maybe 77, 78 minutes into the game. And Limerick are one point ahead. And Joe Canning gets a free, you know, what was it, maybe 80 yards plus from goal. It was way out. It was one of those kind of 50-50 frees. Is he going to make this or not to tie the game? And every Limerick person in the stands was just breaking it, you know, being like, oh, here we go again. They're going to tie it up. They're going to win. It's going to happen again, which is what the mentality of Limerick people was for my whole life anyway to that point. And um, then the ball drops short and it's Tom and everyone is like, oh, God. And, you know, almost when it's dropping short, people are like, this is probably worse because now someone could pull on it. Some Galway player is going to catch it and stick it in the net. And hello, it's 1994 once again and Limerick people go home devastated. But then Tom Condon just attacked the ball, caught the ball. A couple of players around him just burst through them, ripped out of the fence. And I think he got a hand pass off to someone and then the ball was cleared and then bang. Ref blows it up and Limerick go wild. And I think the story of that, yeah, and that's that's my abiding memory of that game and just the relief washing around that stadium and then the cranberries blaring out around Crow Park. Um, and to, to be Tom Condon, you know, I sat down with him about, or I talked to him on the phone, it was for an interview maybe a month later. Um, and, you know, he came from Nakaderi, a village of like 1,500 people. They'd never won in All-Ireland before. He was the most unlikely hero, I suppose, from Limerick that you could pick out. He'd been sent off. Limerick had won blot that year. They were hammered by Clare uh, during the Munster Championship. Tom Condon had been sent off by that. And Tom Condon spoke about that red card and how his teammates all started calling him Zinedine Zidane after that <laughs> um, for the year. But he actually kind of, you know, it was a fun, obviously, but he obviously kind of took that red card to heart. But he kind of thought, John Kiley's not going to give me another chance here. I've kind of blown it for him in terms of my temperament and things like that. And then I think it was Richie English got injured in well into well beyond the 70th minute um, in that game. And then off the bench comes Tom Condon. Didn't really do much in the six minutes between that. But then what a moment to step up and to become like the most unlikely hero for, for Limerick's historic win. And I do think that kind of, you know, if that point went over or if some other player had caught it and stuck it in the net, I think we could be looking at it as great as this Limerick team are. I think the current generation might have been scarred the way so many Limerick people and players were by that 94 loss to Offaly. Yeah, well, that's great stuff. Last one here is the sub two hour marathon in Vienna in 2019. Yeah, I presume you were there for work. Yeah, I was there for work and uh, I was kind of floating around the course. Obviously, you know, there's not much you can write during the race. This guy is just continuing to run 434 per mile or 250 per kilometre. So I was kind of floating around. And one thing they had at that sub two hour marathon attempt was a treadmill set up. Uh, beside the course whereby people could run at the pace Kipchoge was running, which is 159 marathon pace. So I hopped on it for the crack and ran it for two minutes before I was absolutely dying of death and fell off the treadmill um, during the race. But yeah, there was like such crowds in the end of that morning and it was like I was kind of skeptical about the attempt because you know they weren't following all the rules in terms of they were handing them drinks off a bike rather than pick them off a table you know and they had a team of pacemakers rotating so it wasn't going to count as an official world record but obviously they had to do those things just to give him the shot at sub two and he absolutely smashed it you know I mean went obviously 18 seconds under the sub two marathon and the crowds were just going wild and it was in essence, a kind of a boring thing, like just one man running at the same pace and can he hold on? But 
in another way, it was the most thrilling thing because it was like just a man, despite all the stuff, you know, Ineos, whatever, they're, a, you know, fracking and they have a, a terrible environmental record. And when they're a sponsor, you're kind of like a bit queasy about the event in terms of it is sports washing, essentially. But at its heart was this lovely guy, Elliot Kipchoge, a modest guy from the highlands of Kenya, going where no man had ever gone before. And just to have seen that in the flesh and to seen the kind of, it felt at the finish line, like not just, this is cheesy, but not just a celebration for Kipchoge. It was kind of like a celebration for humanity in terms of, yes, they didn't follow some of the smaller rules, but at its heart, this was a man running around a flat course at 4.34 per mile for 26.2 miles. And that was just, much like Warhol, that was just something that for so long in our lives seemed impossible, but then he did it. Okay. Carl, that's great stuff. That is a brilliant episode of You Had to Be There. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. Cheers, Joe. That's Carl Dennis. Oh, there you go. That's Carl Denny with this week's uh, You Had to Be There. It's 9.17. Let's get straight to Graham Hunter, who I think is uh, on the line for us. Graham, good morning to you. How are you? No, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back after these. OTB AM. 19 minutes past nine. Graham Hunter is with us this morning. Graham, good morning to you. How are you? All right, Joe. Um, the Casemiro thing seems a bit left field. In retrospect, does it make a bit of sense for Real Madrid to cash in on an aging star and replace him with somebody much younger for a relatively similar price? No, um, I don't think it did. I think it will cost in the league uh, at the end of this season. I don't think they cashed in. Um, once they were presented with Casemiro saying to them, I want to leave, something that he'd been uh, trailing at since the end of last season. He hadn't said, I'm out of here, that's it. He had said that he wanted a new challenge. It's a pretty intricate story, <clears throat> given that the, the firm that represents Casemiro is run by the former Real Madrid uh, Director of Communications, Oscar Ribot. Florentino Perez's son has, from the outset, been associated with that firm. He's been you know, an extended part of that firm. So it's, a, it's an operation where I suspect they were allowed to go and, and seek out a buyer, um, because Casemiro had made, I think, pretty close to an irrevocable decision <clears throat> that if the right opportunity came along, he would go. There's been a lot of talk at Real Madrid since he left about how disappointed his fellow players are that he's gone. Not disappointed in him, but that they keenly feel what will be a sense of loss because of his importance. Both Florentino Perez and Carlo Ancelotti said, look, Casemiro has earned the right over the years to say, this is my time to go. And that's a brilliant, elegant way to run a football club if you think you can afford to. Their gamble is that Modric and Cross and Valverde plus Camavinga and Chalmeni will mean that they can assume the loss. And at that stage, I can answer your question and say, that is great money for a player who's 30 plus. Except for the fact that, look at Modric, he's 37 and still playing. Whether there's seven more great years in Casemiro is, is a slightly different question. But um, they've made good money on a deal that they that they were they were pushed into making. Okay, he he seems like um, it's interesting you talk about the, the the teammates being disappointed that he's gone. He seems like a student of the game, a good footballer, a decent person. I, I mean, I'm, I'm extrapolating here, but what 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 can you tell us about that kind of stuff? I, I like him. It, it's it's not always the case that the image you have of a footballer when you study them or you commentate, co-commentate about them, um, marries up with what you find when you meet them. And then when you meet them, when you interview them, doesn't mean that you know their full personality or their full life. We, we must never fall into that trap. 
But when I've met and interviewed Casemiro three or four times, um, I've found him deeply interesting. Uh, once he commits to an interview, he's committed. He'll he'll talk properly. He'll listen. He'll answer. Uh, as far as his personality is concerned, in in terms of what it meant to Real Madrid, he carries a very strong reputation that he was one of those leaders without the armband. That he was consistently committed to excellence. There there were one or two who said that the arrival of Chalmeni would would help sharpen him up, would help keen his senses to 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 raise his performance after the defeat of Inter Frankfurt and Helsinki to win the UEFA Super Cup. Everybody was saying, look at Casemiro, look at how immediately he, he's he's become competitive again because he was outstanding man of the match. Well, Verdi just heaped eons of praise on him after that, that game. And, and he was a standout footballer that night. Turned out that that was his goodbye. That was his sign-off performance. Um, I think in terms of student of the game, Jerry, I, I genuinely think he's a, a brilliant reader. Not Often we talk about how people read a game in terms of how they read the threats from the opposition. But an awful lot of that, if you don't play it in a rigorous system, like, for example, at the at the um, one end of the scale would be peak Rafa Benitez, peak Pep Guardiola, where the system dominates, where you must do as I've told you and we've trained this and it needs to be almost like strictly come football. Um, but Ancelotti's Madrid is completely different. There's a lot of jazz solos in the midfield. Ancelotti said halfway through last season, I don't go and give instructions to Modric and Cruz and Casemiro. What, what, what have I got to tell them? They know how to play football. So reading the game in Casemiro's case was very much reading when does Modric want to go? Is he pressing? Is he running with the ball? Where do I go? If Modric has dropped back, do I step up and, and leave Modric to cover? It's a little bit what happened in the Champions League final. Casemiro's role is only a, an axis. It's it's not um, genius-like. But when Modric drops deep and releases a ball, Carvajal and Casemiro link up in midfield. Casemiro's taking a step forward. He releases Valverde. Off they go and Vinicius scores. He's a very, very good footballer. And I think that the test will be that he's going into an extremely different situation. He's working for uh, uh, a manager of completely different mindset than Ancelotti now. And he's also helping, you know, scoop water out of a, a if not a, a sinking rowing boat, given how they played against Liverpool. And certainly a rowing boat that's, that's carrying too much water in it at the moment. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how, how that turns out. Uh, Graham, just a, a couple of other things to uh, touch on. The Barcelona situation, um, obviously it's been something that's rumbled on all summer. The Aubameyang departure and the registration issue with Jules Koundé. These two things are, are, are linked, are they, Graham? And, and how soon do you expect them both to be sorted? Yeah, for once we've got crystal clarity on this. La Liga have told Barcelona that there will be no more selling off future assets, no more equity release in, in, in order to register Jukunde. They have to either take in good transfer revenue and or, because it can clearly be both depending on who you sell, decrease their, their salary outgoings and therefore it has to be a, a relatively senior player, whether it be Memphis Depay or Aubameyang, whose wages were um, when he signed on freedom of contract because let's not forget he was completely free to Arsenal rescinded his contract he came for no cost 
he came on a very low initial wage deal at the end of the season, but then his wages went back up to Arsenal levels um, as of the 1st of July this summer. And therefore, albeit that he scored last night against Manchester City, albeit that while this current version of Xavi's team is bedding in, Barcelona fans might feel a little bit um, remorseful that it, it's not Aubameyang playing, say, instead of Rafinha or uh, Dembele. Because last season when he clicked, his pace and his finishing power looked really special for football club Barcelona. And if he goes, there'll be those who are saying, well, that's a, that's a real asset in terms of winning trophies this season. They've gone, but it's essential. Otherwise, Koundé, who played last night and played well against City in a friendly um it isn't registered and there's absolute crystal clarity about that issue too that if Kunde isn't registered by the time the 1st of September comes around and the market closes then he'll be a free agent and another club will pick up an absolute wonderful bargain alright I didn't realise that wow I mean so obviously well, Jerry, you're, Jerry you're signed for a club and, and they can't register and the market's closed what are you going to do if you're a world class footballer with a world cup coming up sit around until January and say that's fine I needed a couple of weeks off so Bus on either register him by the end of the market or they lose him. Wow, okay. Well, does that mean something's going to happen? Is there any... Uh, the, the One of the papers this morning is reporting that Liverpool are the latest team to be linked uh, to Frankie de Jong. Is, there, is, that, uh, is that situation not fixable in this window? And so, therefore, we should just assume that de Jong will still be a Barcelona player in a that, week's time. That's a, that's, a, that's a question which is, you know, beyond all our ken because... De Jong should leave for his own career in terms of how much football he's likely to get across the season, in terms of the fact that he's got a World Cup to think about and, a, and, a, and an easy group for the Netherlands to get out of. But it, 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 it's now not about whether, you know, Barcelona can force him out or how much any club, Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester United, want to. At the moment, he's completely committed to staying and he's been robust about and this is where I, I worry a little bit because I don't think he's at full tilt in terms of his contribution to the team, in terms of his football development, in terms of his physical development. He still looks like the you know the milk-fed teenager he did when he arrived. He hasn't changed at all. He hasn't followed the lessons that Iniesta and Xavi and Messi showed him. Well, like if you're if you're you know if you're a, a slender footballer or a small footballer, then make sure that you maximise your ability to hold off other footballers and gain just that half a yard and he hasn't done that his talents of which there are many are being obscured by the by the, by the carry-on around and the farage around him and, and really um, my feeling is that he's in a comfort zone he, he likes he loves his money the previous president paid him an obscene amount of money when elongating his contract it was just a stupid piece of business um, his girlfriend soon to be wife wants to live here they bought a new house sympathise with all of that because they're human beings they're not just commodities but the world of football is often a pretty um, pragmatic one and if if he's not in a comfort zone then you know I'm Chairman Mao uh, just uh, one other bit of business that looks like it's set to be done possibly in the next few hours is Alexander Isak to Newcastle United. Uh, you would have seen uh, a lot more of him possibly than the, the rest of us at, at club level anyway. Graham, how much is, is this guy going to bring to the Premier League? Yeah, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with buying potential and that's mm-hmm. all that Newcastle are buying right now. Tremendously quick. Um, been playing elite football or top level football since he was practically just passing 15 um, so he's been in pressure situations for seven years now. Last season wasn't simply 
bad luck or or poor assist play around him by Real Sociedad. He he dropped his level significantly last season, missing chances on a repeated basis and scoring, I don't know what, across the season six or eight, something like that. Um, I can't explain why last season was such a backward step for him, but he's very, very quick. If you look around um, the way that um, Willett plays and San Maximan plays and Bruno Gamarani's plays, uh, Newcastle play at pace. I don't think they want to be a counter-attack team every single week, but often they will be. Isaac will be able to be there for players that make a quick break under Eddie Howe. And as somebody who's met Eddie Howe, interviewed him, and somebody who lost Ryan Fraser from Aberdeen at a very young age to Eddie Howe's team then in the second division, I was so ticked off. And then I looked at Ryan Fraser once he'd been, once he'd been under Eddie Howe's tutelage, and he, he changed out of all recognition. Isaac may be going for a huge amount of money and there may be a lot of pressure on him, but one of the things I hope to see is Eddie Howe um, just easing out the last gauche parts of a, of a promising footballer's um, armoury. It's a, it's a gigantic price and it's money that, you know, it's the owners, I wouldn't be going to play, play for Newcastle if I was Isaac, given who owns them, but good luck to them. Like they sound like you're, you're making sounds as if like the potential really is is huge. He just he he's kind of been blown off course a little bit. Oh, oh no, oh, no. no. Given that, I want to draw back. I, I, right. There is no doubt that he is an exciting striker. There is no doubt that he's got a decent brain. I've met him. I've interviewed him, and think there's a there's there's a smart enough person in there. Um, there is lots of potential, but I I'd be very surprised if he hits the ground. And by Christmas, we're talking about somebody who's knocked in 10 or 12 goals. Good luck to him. I hope he does. Uh, but last season was one of those where you look and you think, well, why has your concentration dropped so badly? Why are you skewing shots left and right or over that previously, at minimum, you were putting between the three posts? So there's there's something that maybe only he can explain personally about what was going on in his head. You know he's an exciting footballer, and and you know, those Newcastle fans genuinely, every club is proud of the fans. They are extraordinary. May they be the wind beneath his wings. May he flourish. Good luck to him. But they're by potential rather than a made man. Graham, great stuff. Thanks a million for joining us this morning. Cheers. It's Graham Hunter giving us some thoughts there and um, some very quick uh, comments to read. Pat Spillane must replace Owen, like for like, really, and available says Powell seventy four. Oh. It's the most uh, cutting thing that's ever been said about Pat Spillane. Good shout. Hashtag Brawley for Owen. Brawley for Owen is definitely something I can get behind. The first one was Frank and the second one was Zed Leplin. <laughs> Lives in Belfast. Needs to be in studio. It's a very, very quick commute these days. Uh, about two hours, but yeah. Uh, yeah, South America can get very rainy, says Gary Flynn. Yeah, my, son, my, my sort of place. Uh, just remember there's talk of Owen competing in the crappy quiz so I think his last show is tomorrow Betty wipes the floor with the other guys good man Owen you'll be missed I am doing a crappy quiz tomorrow and I don't think there'll be any floor wiping going on this is going to be hugely embarrassing and I may not show up Monday and Tuesday next week as a result well you better uh, does off the ball have the budget to get Stone Cold Steve Austin to sit in with Jer every morning asks Gao Shale no Def- definitely yeah no we don't I mean if we did we wouldn't have Owen <laughs> Uh, <laughs> 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 oh my god uh, oh in the North Caribbean coast of Colombia Tayrona National Park used Santa Marta as a base very cheap and beautiful says Darrell Keefe this is, the, this is what you come for the good information does Darrell live there I'd say he was there I'd say he was there good advice uh, uh, whatever you do 
don't take angry producer Mick he might become pleasant producer Mick and that was it I think that's probably all the rest of them that I can read there's loads of um, is, it, is, it, is there any more is there any more I can read I don't know uh, okay how are you feeling Owen how are you feeling give us the like, blow by blow this is turning into a going away do almost as long as Brian O'Driscoll's yeah yeah that's been commented on upon a few times at this point I'll, I'll just become exhausted by the whole thing and get sick of uh, trotting out the same platitudes yeah not feeling great like I mean I've got to just get, get a few, I've got to get a few fillings before I go so oh, today, no. today is one of those days oh no and I'm trying to squeeze everything in like but you're uh, not getting cheaper in South America yeah, it's the, it's the, is that a good thing to do? Yeah. I mean, that's like the... My phone's actually been buzzing. The dentist has been trying to call me, actually. The all, American equivalent of Turkey. He's like, no, you, you, sorry, your teeth are too ruined. You can't you can't get it done. But quite possibly, yeah. So I think, I think I'm going, I think I'm running the table with uh, the dentist between today and tomorrow. Um, just trying to get stuff done before I go. And uh, get a few, get a few jabs as well. Stop me getting... A bit late now. Uh it's uh, from what I definitely left a lot of things too late. There's definitely one uh, disease that I'm not protected from. I can't right, remember which one. Run uh, the gauntlet. No, yeah, I think basically as long as I don't get into like a, uh, any serious accidents or something like that, I should be okay. But other than that, the, bug, the bugs won't do too much damage by all accounts. Jojo says, get it done in South America. It's so much cheaper. The dentistry or with jabs? Dentistry, dentistry, yeah. Dentistry. Yeah. And, and whatever else, a bit of filler, a bit of Botox. And what country in South America specifically? Well, I mean, he's Brazil, obviously. Brazil? But, yeah. Nice. Okay. It's going to take him ages to get down there because he's going by bus. Yeah. Yeah. I could. Yeah. The tea could be gone by then. Right. Champions Rob Kearney, Johnny Murta, and Ger Lyons join off the ball for our Longines Irish Champions Weekend special in the Davenport Hotel. This coming Friday, they'll be previewing the Saturday and Sunday Champions Weekend at Leopardstown and the Curra on September 10th and 11th. It's an exclusive off air event to enjoy. You've got to be there in the night. Check out otbsports.com forward slash events for tickets. Coming up on OTB Sports Radio today, Sherlock Nan at one. Leaders question to Stuart Lancaster at three. Our retro panel is Ireland, the football tournament at four. And OTB Gold is the Wexford 1956 team. We're brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.